Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also find us on Facebook as well, searching for Political Beats. We ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes delivered right to you through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in, or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share with friends and loved ones and enemies, and leave reviews. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, with a fresh new haircut, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Well, you know, it's not, it's not all sunshine and lollipops right now. I'm actually working on some pretty heavy stuff, putting together my will and uh, trying to take care of, you know, dispensing with, you know, my final wishes. And I just want you to know, Scott, that if for some reason tragedy should befall me and I can't continue on with the podcast, I have a younger brother who's more than willing to take <laughs> over. And your other brother's in another great band or another great podcast, I should say. Exactly. That's cool. Uh, at Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. And a return guest for this engagement. You know him as the uh, host at 660 AM The Answer in Dallas-Fort Worth, Salem Media. Hear him guest hosting for uh, many Salem hosts, uh, most prominently Dennis Prager, also a columnist for Dallas Morning News and townhall.com. Find him on Twitter at Mark Davis. Mark Davis is back on Political Beats. Mark, thanks for joining us. It is an unparalleled joy. Thank you very, very much for having me. Mark was with us previously doing a little episode on Paul McCartney and Wings, which was well-received. And uh, I can't believe we were talking before the show started. It's been more than two years since that show, which blows my mind. But, but No, well, all things are measured by, of course, the age of Jeff's child. I mean, that is the <laughs> standard by which, I mean, how many how many years of the bopper you know, have passed since this particular episode? But I found it hard to believe that it was Listen, that long ago that we were doing McCartney. And by the way, if the Romans could, could measure their, their chronology by, like, consoles, we certainly can measure ours by my son. That <laughs> seems fair. Seems totally abundantly fair. The year of the bopper. <laughs> coming. Every year is the year of the bopper. That's right. Mark, as we bring you back, please uh, reintroduce yourself to people. Tell them uh, what you do now, what you've done in the past, and how you fit in. Happy to. I, I am a native of Texas, so when I came back here 26 years ago to do radio shows, it was a return to my native Texas, where I spent only about 18 months because Dad was in the Air Force, stationed at Randolph when I was born way back in 1957. Uh, the Air Force had him at the Pentagon and Andrews Air Force Base, so I grew up in the suburbs of D.C., got my journalism degree at the University of Maryland, put that to use as a reporter in West Virginia and Jacksonville, Florida, which will loom large here in the, uh, the, the coming uh, minutes. Uh, and then uh, a talk show career that took me to Jacksonville, Memphis, uh, and then back to D.C., and then in 1994, back here, where I'm, I've, I worked for 18 years at uh, ABC and Disney's WBAP, now in the Salem Media Group, the land uh, at the time of Bill Bennett, and now of Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Dennis Prager, Larry Elder. These are my colleagues, and I am uh, proud to hold down the local show at 6.60 a.m. The answer and fire off columns for the Dallas Morning News and townhall.com, chronicling the passing parade which is an amazing thing to do even when we're not beset by uh, strife in the streets and the virus we got to lick. It's, it's an amazing time to, to, to chronicle history in real time. They actually recommend that you do not lick the virus, Mark. Just that to, is quite to very, exactly true. That is not <laughs> distancing. The opposite of distancing. Uh, Mark is back with us today to talk about a little band you might have heard of from Jacksonville, Florida. 
creators, originators of a very nice brand of Southern rock, a career cut short, far too short, uh, via plane crash, which we'll talk about a little later on in the program. And you already know, of course, we speak of the great Leonard Skinner. Very easy to spell. All the vowels are wise. Keep that in mind. Leonard Skinner, our band today. Mark Davis, the floor back to you. Tell us why you love Leonard Skinner, how you got into them, and why people should care about this music. As I, it was my pleasure to do during the McCartney segment, I, I'm going to go full old guy on you and tell you that when the first album came out, pronounced, uh, in fact, I'm going to say mispronounced because I think you just pronounced it correctly. Leonard Skinner. It rhymes perfectly. I don't really know anybody that says Leonard Skinner, even though it is a, uh, right. a loving tip of the hat to the gym <laughs> teacher who we'll talk about in a bit. But so it's 1973. I'm 15 years old. And most of my diet at that time is like some early deep purple, some who, some I've, I've already long since been loving the Beatles, this and that. And then you're, you get into that early Almond Brothers period, which was not so much my cup of tea at the time. Uh, Eat a Peach, Brothers and Sisters, you know, Ramblin' Man, not that they were the only act of this uh, newfound genre, but it just, it, it wasn't a big deal. I also didn't have a, a big depth uh, of country familiarity beyond what my parents were listening to. So this was, for me, a, a suburban kid in Washington, D.C., uh, an interesting indoctrination when that first album came out and I, I had the opportunity to 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 consume these very very different kinds of sounds these very different records from the very beginning of the first side we'll go we'll go track by track here in a little bit but when you get something like uh, a free bird when you get something that's that's just uh, uh i don't i I need an, an adjective. It was, there was an impact here. And I guess it was sort of felt around the country as well, because, you know, the heyday of quote unquote Southern rock, a genre we probably need to talk about a little bit, was something that was just taking shape. And, and so this was my, as happened with many of the McCartney records, it was, it was woven around part of my childhood. And so when you are 15, and you're, you're you're for the first time you sit down to the uh, uh, however long the, the the album version of Freebird was in excess of nine minutes, and the stuff that the things that are now now classics the the rowdiness of, of Gimme Three Steps the, uh, the 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 profoundness of Tuesday's Gone just on that first album I was hooked immediately hooked.
then of course along comes Second Helping, which just bust the doors open with, with Sweet Home Alabama and some other tracks uh, that we'll discuss uh, in, in, in detail in a bit. Um, as we will the other you know remaining studio albums and then the live album and then The Crash. Again, more details to follow, but for The Crash, it's, it's 1977 and I am in the beginning of my junior year at college. And I've got the quintessential dorm room, the stereo <laughs> setup. This, this is very much like cave drawings to, to, to modern listeners. But you've got. Daddy, what's a record player? Exactly. Uh, exactly. What is this vinyl? And it mattered so much that you had a turntable that was not belt drive, but direct drive. It made all. <laughs> because surely you could tell with your human ears. Like that's, now, that's a reference, actually, I don't even get. So, oh, yeah. Well, wow. it, it was exactly. Well, your belt drive, direct drive, it was the notion of whether there was an intermediary bit of Rube Goldberg device that made your record go around at exactly 33 and a third. Well, among the records going around on my Phillips turntable were, of course, Give Me Back My Bullets and, and, and Second Helping and, and all, all of these... Uh, all these Skinnerd records among, uh, and I think we all had pretty eclectic childhoods, but this is where I also learned that um, uh, a lot of my Southern Maryland, suburban Maryland uh, compadres had a little more redneck in them than I thought, <laughs> because that was where all the Allman Brothers uh, enthusiasm was coming from. And so I sort of had a, a running pack of friends with whom to really, really enjoy and explore of the beginning of the Skinnerd catalog, and then when the cra when the crash came, I mean, we all have our. I mean, the big ones, you know, the, the Elvis's death in '77, Lennon gets killed in 1980, Michael Jackson a few years ago, and I don't think that any two of these are really alike. And you end up thinking, well, how big a deal was the artist? Skinnerd certainly not as big as Lennon, not as big as Elvis, but something about just the way that happened. And, and because we may change, we may vary on opinions of this. I think that the first two albums are much better than the last two, or than the, the next two. And Street Survivors was, I mean, it was Skinnerd was back. It was a magnificent. It, it was a, a a road flare sent up into the night sky that said, "We are back." It was the promise of, you know, because these guys were all still in their twenties. It was the promise of another decade, if not more, of really great Skinnerd albums, all of it going literally up in flames uh, in, in the, the woods of Mississippi. It was, it was absolutely gut-wrenching. of mine came knocking on my door and, and as will often happen with exactly the wrong facts he told me the entire band had been killed <laughs> and we learned later on of course it was just ronnie and Stephen cassie Gaines. and and so I'll, I'll i'll just stop there because as as i guess will happen uh that when you have a, a tragedy 
that lifts up the entire catalog. Because all I remember is all of a sudden everybody wanted to go back and revisit. And again, keep in mind, we're revisiting only the previous four and a fraction years. Mm-hmm. Only That's it. This entire, I mean, the Beatles were only, you know, recording stuff for the, the better part of seven years, if that. Uh, so everybody's catalog is kind of, of made compact. But what these guys have done, you take four years of amazing product and then throw in the tragedy of the plane crash and the 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 lyrical legendary uh, boost that you'll get from that, and so as we went into the '80s, I maintained my taste for those early albums, and I suppose I feel much like you guys do in terms of the policy that we we've, we've chosen for this, and I totally agree with the return in 91 and the Johnny Van Zant era. And those are some okay albums, but I don't even really consider them to be part of the Skinnerd canon. Right. It's it's there. There's no biography quite like theirs. There's a lot of Southern rock, but nobody quite like them. And certainly no story that contains the kind of emotional arc that, uh, that followed them. See, I didn't appreciate Leonard Skinner nearly as much as um, as as you did, Mark. And and the thing is, I, I think I've come to a place where I do now. In fact, it's funny. Uh, just like I guess a month ago, maybe month and a half ago, I was idly musing on Twitter. I was like, boy, you know, I've just never really been able to get into Leonard Skinner. This is before we booked the show. It just uh-huh. was pure happenstance. And then Scott immediately piped up. He's like, you know what, Jeff, go back and listen to those first two albums again. Uh, you're gonna like them. Uh, and I had listened to those as a kid. And of course, I'd known all the famous songs too. There's, you cannot listen to classic rock radio in the '80s and '90s, and you're, you're going to hear, you know, you know, what's your name? You're going to hear that smell. You're going to hear "Sweet Home Alabama." I mean, it literally, it might as well just be tattooed on your frontal lobe, you know, <laughs> as a kid, you know, in rock music. But also, like, I, I knew some stuff that was a little more obscure. Like, I always, I always really did love the uh, the riff to the song called "Working for MCA," which I think is like secretly one of their best songs. But for some reason in my mind I'd always just sort of thought about Leonard Skinner it's like okay that's a good band it's a respectable band but I don't have any particular love for them I think that when the time that my musical opinions were being formed I I I would never have said that I was like allergic to southern rock because I had no problem with this music but I didn't have any particular affinity for it and so ironically enough for me the story is a little reversed I I got into the Allman Brothers long before I got into Leonard Skinner Uh, and what what drew me to the Allman Brothers was what drew me to bands like the Grateful Dead I was uh, mesmerized by their live act and then I came to appreciate the authenticity of this you know their fusion of blues and country and soul and you know and rock and you know the way they put that all into a package and it was then that I went back and I looked at someone like Leonard Skinner and the funny thing is, is that, you know, as I, I'd started re-listening to all of their albums, actually, you know, before we did the show. And so I was already getting into a reappreciation of them. But, you know, once we booked this, I really started buckling down on them. And I have like my theory about Skinner is that their genius is and this is a comparison to a band you might not be familiar with. Scott is because we've done an episode on them already. I think that they're like the Southern rock equivalent of pavement. That their their genius is that they seem like there's like they're like slackers and lazy you know southern <laughs> rockers, but they actually like are deeply obsessively 
devoted to detail and mm-hmm. to craftsmanship. They care about every note, everything. You know, the stories about Skinner as a band is that what was it that they practiced in some like you know shack without air conditioning yeah. in the in the, the swamps of Jack, the Hell House, right? And like you know, Ronnie Van Zant would basically be like their taskmaster, there, and he was like, you know, play, 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 rehearse, 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 to the point like where they went into the studio, there was no dicking around, there was no improvisation, which you know people say like, oh, that means it's not spontaneous. No, it means that this stuff had just been worked perfectly. And I think their their producer, Al Cooper, described them as like, you know, one of the most genius arranging bands that he'd ever encountered. They knew uh, every place that a guitar lick should go, where a piano fill should be. They had thought so hard and so long about their sound that what you end up with these 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 albums, these five albums and then one live album is something that I actually now think of is almost like uh, it's the tragedy of the ending of the group and their death in the plane crash is obviously there but on the other hand what they ended up leaving us with is a perfect discography I actually do not think that the second two albums are like you know hugely a step downwards from the first two albums i think they're not as good but as we'll discuss i think they're actually pretty excellent in a lot of ways i do not think of them as a massive decline in quality before uh, street survivors so what you have is these records that are incredibly well arranged incredibly well put together you have like a six or seven piece band where everybody has a purpose and everybody knows what they're doing and you have a, a three guitar lineup three guitarists at the front of this band and again every guitar plays a role it's not like they're all like chunka chunka chunkaing on the same notes or something like that everyone weaves in and out of one another everyone has a reason for being it's some of the most intelligent rock and roll uh, that you're going to hear during the 1970s and, and that's a paradox because we think of these guys as like you know the ultimate you know fun time drugs bad you know like you know singing about georgia peaches and cocaine and having parties and stuff like that but man the music is so much smarter than that I, I remember whenever they would have started. What was the first payment out? Uh, Slanted, Slanted and Enchanted, 1991. Yeah. Exactly. And and when that comes out, I remember they were was was everything they did self produced. I'm I'm trying to I, I for their first their first two albums were self produced. And, and, they, and, and because I'm a big fan of paying attention to production, and I and I'm going to go back and revisit uh, <laughs> some payment to see what you think. Because with with the producing of Al Cooper and the the Skinner story cannot be told without Al Cooper. 
and the things he was doing uh, in the studio, we can, we can talk some more about those once we get into some details. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that, that with, with this, and the, the paradox is a perfect term too, because, uh, because I will tell you about just how deep down home redneck the west side of Jacksonville actually is. And for these guys to craft what you've now called some of the most intelligent rock of the 70s, not just the most intelligent southern rock, but it is, it's almost cerebral how they went about it. And I remember it wasn't so long ago that I caught, was it the Netflix documentary called If You Leave Here, If I Leave Here Tomorrow? It, it was an amazing chronicle. Uh, I mean, were these guys miscreants? Were they drinking a lot? Were, were they uh, trouble in school? Absolutely. But they knew what they loved. They loved their craft and they honored it with a work ethic that, that may be close to unmatched. It's almost CCR-like, is the way I think about it. I, I think of John Fogarty riding Creedence Clearwater as a band yeah. to get the perfect sound out. That's almost the way I think of Ronnie Van Zant getting everything out of Leonard Skinner. But Scott, yeah, and, and well, to that point, and, and, and kind of by way of introduction of, of the band too, you know, Ronnie Van Zant was clearly the, the leader of, of Skinner. He's the guy that put him through the paces in the Hell House and had them practice for hours and hours on end. And for a lot of these guys. Despite the fact that he was the same age, he was that disciplinarian father figure in their life. Uh, virtually everybody else in the band uh, did not have a father in, in his life, uh, either early deaths or just, you know, single moms uh, or, 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 you know, fathers who were not in touch. And so Ronnie very much played that authoritarian uh, role in these guys' lives. They listened to him. Uh, when he demanded they practice, when he demanded that they play, you know, solos live the exact same way they had played them in practice. Uh, he was, you know, without a doubt, the leader of these guys. So, so Skinner comes together in around 64 in Jacksonville. Uh, Ronnie Van Zandt, Bob Burns, the drummer, Gary Rossington on guitar, played on some baseball teams when they were young and, and got together, formed a band, liked what they were doing. They added Alan Collins relatively early. And uh, went through a few, few band names. They were the 1% for a while. And uh, eventually added uh, Leon Wilkinson Wait, on bass. Go ahead. I, I've just got to laugh, by the way. The 1%, that's the name. Yeah, I know. In, in, in 2020, <laughs> that would have, would have taken on a completely different meaning. Anyways, another paradox. Another yes. paradox. Uh, Leon Wilkinson comes in and plays bass. And eventually, uh, 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 Billy Powell is on, on keys and piano. And he got the job only because he, he crafted this intro to, uh, to Freebird. And they said, well, <laughs> you did that. You could be a part of the band, essentially. And Ronnie was always very hard on Billy Powell, knocked his teeth out a couple of times during fights. The stories you hear about Skinner are essentially true, right? The, 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 the drugs, the alcohol, the fighting, uh, all of it. Uh, but as Jeff said, the professionalism of the actual music that is created is something that, that sort of tr uh, transcends the, the wild stories on the road and behind the scenes. And this was true from the very first album. They were they were discovered in a bar by Al Cooper, who was starting his own label or a subsidiary of, of MCA Records, and uh, thought that, that, that Skinner was going to be his, his Allman Brothers um, for, for the label. And I was talking to a friend this past weekend. You know, there are 
obvious comparisons to make between Skinner and Allman Brothers being from the same time and playing essentially from the same rock. town. <laughs> right. They're both from Jacksonville, Florida. Yes. But I, I really don't see them as being all that similar. And I don't know yeah. if Jeff feels the same way, but I, I mean, they, they come from very different beginnings uh, in terms of, how, I think, how they approach the music. Um, I, I mean, certainly, yes, they're both Southern rock bands from Florida, from Jacksonville. But I, I see them as being very different, in, in, at least in my mind, different almost categories of Southern rock. And, and yeah, get, there are get, different categories. They, they get lumped in together because people hear, you know, blues changes and they think, oh, all bands that play like amplified instruments, amplify guitars and play like, you know, like a blues song. Well, then they're all part of the same bag, you know, like, but uh, the Allman Brothers playing Statesboro Blues or Don't Want You No More is a very different proposition yes. than, you know, Leonard Skinner playing I Ain't The One or... Uh, Give me back my bullets. They're just very different songwriterly propositions. The Lennon Skinner songs are much more tightly written. There, there's there's a real mm-hmm, obsession mm-hmm. with the craft of like verse, chorus, verse. You know, contrasting middle eight like guitar solos that are programmed note for note. There's nothing that's like, you know, an accident on a Leonard Skinner guitar solo. It's all this stuff that they probably worked out for like days and yes. weeks in advance. I, I think that, that in pointing those out, that you're, you're, you're going right to why, as I told you in my, my intro, that the 15-year-old Mark Davis was instantly drawn to Skinnerd while the Allman Brothers were, were a step or two away. And I probably didn't develop a real appreciation for the Allman Brothers until I was almost 30 because I just kind of said, eh, I never, never really went there. And, and to make a prop, maybe a clumsy uh, genre analogy, it's like Skinnerd is the tightly crafted soul act making brilliant three-minute records, while the Allman Brothers are more of the free-form jazz act that you'd see in a <laughs> club, or you'd see... Because the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore is what I think about it. I think mm-hmm. about Dickie Betts, and I think about, you know, the, 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 the literal jazz and blues influences of the Allman Brothers that make them probably... Uh, that, that, that make Because you say that the Skinner records are, are more tightly written. I think they're more, and I, I usually hate this word, they're more accessible. I think the Allman Brothers are a little more of an acquired taste. The Skinnerd hooks, the production, the vocals, the the mod, the the everyman sensibility of of the, of the lyrics. That's the kind of thing that made the difference for teenage me. Oh, you're saying that that, that people aren't always in the mood to hear a 48 minute long version of Mountain Jam? Exactly. <laughs> like I said, an acquired taste. <laughs> right. Actually, I mean, I love that kind of stuff because I mean, I'm a deadhead. And, but yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. Whereas, you know, Skinner, like, you know, Freebird is their longest song. That's, that's, that's a blink and you missed it, nine minutes and eight seconds long. But then, of course, it's, it's a song that earns every second of its running time. And it's their big self-conscious epic. But for the most part, they just they lived and they thrived in that, like, four to five minute long range of mm-hmm. songs. Like, here's something crafty. Here's a little guitar flash. Here's a really nice piano solo. Here's a really sneaky, smart lyric. And that's another thing i want to talk about when we get into the records uh, so I, I think ronnie van zant was just a really kind of you know quietly you know such a clever lyricist and he and he, and he was just you know almost like you know that you know that southern slyness like he didn't want you to know how smart he was he, he was more than happy to to play it off as just being some good old boy but now there's there's a there's a lot more intelligent stuff going on in these songs <laughs> that that most people who just hear like sweet home alabama and they don't realize what's really going on in that song which is what i love about it so much anyways 
listen, let's just let's just jump right into that first album. It's pronounced Leonard Skinner. Uh, and they actually had to put the little like, you know, the the um, the dashes and the, uh, you know, the, the actual pronunciation guide right on the front of the album because they wanted to make sure that people didn't try to build this new hot band on the radio it was like Lynard Skynard <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, you know, as far as debuts go, uh, real pretty damn hard to top this one and this is one where you know sky said jeff go back and listen to those first two albums again this one jumped out at me when i was i think the first time i'd exposed myself to skinner seriously whether that had been in college i suppose and i i didn't uh you know i wasn't really excited by a song like i ain't the one i guess i wasn't you know in country rock as a phase yet but now i hear stuff like that or i hear stuff like tuesday is gone and they follow each other back to back and i'm like well this is some of this is this is a perfect this is a perfect sequence. That first side of the album is is, is flawless. Um, I think the second side is maybe, I mean, maybe Mississippi Kid is like the one thing I might criticize on this record. And I don't even mean criticize. I mean, it's just, it's not as great right. as all the other seven well, songs. Co-written, but by, other than that, co-written by Burns, so I don't, don't think Co-wrote wrote another song in Al Cooper. I mean, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's an anomaly. Well, it's, it's the one that's the least of like the core group. Right. But like, other than that, find the flaw. I think maybe another thing is like, when I was a kid, I... Just again, sort of, you, you are a prisoner of the stereotypes that you form at an early age. I had always associated that sort of slack-toned singing of "If I Leave Here Tomorrow" with like a whole host of lazy rock cliches. People with their lighters in the airs and long-haired guys with mustaches saying "Sing Freebird" and they stink of like marijuana smoke and they're the annoying people with the flop sweats that you don't want to be standing next to at a concert. You know, stuff that has nothing to do with the music itself because when you go back to the music itself on this album man what is there turntable needle down on that first side because somebody had said you need to get this record i think we had probably i think we had heard give me three steps i think that was maybe the first thing i'd heard on on what passed for for album rock radio in the dc metro area in 1973 and in just the beginning seconds of i ain't the one with that that sort of reverse Mm -hmm. symbol effect that backwards tape loop that leads into the uh into the rossington acoustic uh version of that uh, i hooked immediately i said this is really really great and i remember a guy 
who lived in Westminster, Maryland, lived to uh, just just the heart of rural Maryland, came in, sat down. There may have been a bong hit involved. I can't confirm or deny. But when it got down to the end of that first side and he heard the, the nearly six minutes of Simple Man, he said, who are these guys? Get your lust. Rich man's gold All that you need Is in your soul And you can do this If you try remarkable, remarkable thing. That was in the college era when somebody had not had familiar with Skinner. But back in 73 and 15, I was introducing a whole bunch of people to it and they had the same reaction that I did. And it seemed, it, it, it seemed of the genre, a genre that existed to be sure, but um, there's, it, I don't want to say unique because that means something. It means there's only one. But it certainly was uncommon. It certainly was distinctive. And in its way, I think, kind of trailblazing. Yeah, and we'll we might talk about this a bit later, but you know, Skinner in some ways I think is discounted because of everyone who came after. I mean, this what they did on these first two albums, I think specifically, has been copied so many times, and it's you know, copies of copies of copies of bands down the line that it's somewhat cliched at this point. Some of the some of the moves, right? But it was all very new on pronounced Leonard Skinner. And um, one thing we should note, you know, the three guitar attack of Leonard Skinner is not on this album. Uh, Leon Wilkinson had had quit just before the, the, the taping of the, of the album. He just couldn't handle the pressure, probably because Ronnie Van Zant was yelling at him and punching him. Um, and so Ed King comes in, formerly of Strawberry Alarm Clock. They, the, 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 he had met the band because Strawberry Alarm Clock had opened for Skinner on some dates, and they brought Ed King in to play. Bass. So Ed bass. King, yeah, he Ed plays King. on like, doesn't he play bass on all these songs? Yes, yes he does. On yeah. all these songs. And then moves to guitar for uh, record two, which we'll talk about in a second. So everything here on Leonard Skinner, this first album is uh, is just Alan Collins and Gary Rossington. And they do an okay job. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's safe to say that, like, you know, Freebird doesn't embarrass anybody in the annals of guitar solos. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, I, I always love the rankings of guitar solos. I don't know what the real criteria are. Is it really about proficiency? Is it driven only by the, the, the incredible lightning fingers of an Eddie Van Halen? Or is it a way in which, the, to me, the, the, the Freebird guitar solo sings? The Freebird guitar solo is like a vocal to me it is um and i don't even know what that really means i i, I hope it translates it's not just proficiency 
Uh, it, it is, out of their doubt, there's anything quite like that. say one thing about this album this is the you know the thing that that i remembered as a kid loving and then i come back to it as an adult and i have a renewed appreciation for it i've always loved the the song obviously give me three steps but the lyric is just so the lyric is so smart too you know you think it's going to be one of these typical like southern macho bravado songs right like i'm dancing at the the local juke joint with this hot woman and the guy storms in and then (laughs) then it's be like i deck him right between the eyes and i knock him out and i take the girl because i'm a big man and i'm a hero nope 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 it's not the it's it's not that at all ronnie van zandt he's yeah i wouldn't call ronnie a coward i would say that he's a judicious person (laughs) ronnie ronnie probably Properly understands the correlation of forces, you see, and that man has a gun in his hand, and he uh, probably doesn't want to lose his life for like you know, like you know, the the, the local girl who who likes to dance with everyone just to piss off her jealous boyfriend. Oh, Linda so, Lou, yeah. Linda Lou at the jug. L- Linda Lou at, at the <laughs> jug. She's cutting a rug at the jug. That's just a great line too. Cutting a rug. I love that that phrase. I've used that phrase ever since I heard it in this song for like dancing. And then people look at me like I've got a third head or something like that. But um, but I love that line where it's like you know, uh, you know, I'm going to uh. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I don't yeah, know. You, I, I don't I, want no trouble with you. I, I didn't. Because wait a minute, Mister. I didn't even kiss her. I don't want no trouble with you. I know you don't owe me. Right. But I wish you'd let me ask one <laughs> favor from you. And just you know, give me three steps. Give me a head start, and I'm no. going to just be. I'm going to be running. I'm going to be down the street. And you know what? You are never going to hear from me again. No harm, no foul, no male ego wounded. Just let me go. It's just like, because you know what? It's the way that people actually would react to that situation. It's not like, like, oh, I'm going to be a hero. It's like, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to bug out as soon as I can. It's I, so funny. I said,
said a retelling, or perhaps around the time Ronnie told his bandmates, look, he was either going to shoot me in the ass or the elbow. That's all he was going to get out of me. <laughs> That's why he's running <laughs> toward the door. Um, right. And just, just to follow up on Jeff, look, there are, there are you know, three massive power ballads, just huge, right? Simple Man and, and Tuesday's Gone and Freebird. But I, I would argue perhaps that Gimme Three Steps is the most impressive song on this album because of what Jeff talked about, because it is so assured, it is so confident. Um, it's almost impossible to think it's from a debut because of, of, of how well done it is. This great loping baseline boogie, this real experience that Ronnie turns into a, a classic set of lyrics that is just such a self-assured song. Uh, it might be the, the, the best accomplishment on the album, and that's with a whole lot of really high points. Uh, you know, Mark had mentioned Simple Man. Tuesday's Gone is just a beautiful song. It's one of a series of Ronnie songs about, you know, well, I got to go. I uh, wish I could stay, but I got to get going. And uh, Tuesday's, Tuesday's gone. gone is the, Tuesday's Gone is the sort of song that the Black Crows kept trying to do again and again and again on their albums and never did it nearly as well as this. <laughs> because you hear that all over, like, you know, Southern Harmony, Musical Companion. You all hear that all over the Black Crows, the Shake Your Money Maker yeah. debut. And I remember I was criticizing those songs when I heard that we did our episode on the Crows like, quite a while ago as well. And I was like, yeah, these just all seem just there's a, something a little bit tinny about them there's a little bit forced and then i you know i go back and i hear this song for the first time in you know she's 10 15 years recently and i was like ah <laughs> i see i see they're trying to do that skinner thing and there's a reason that you know everybody tries to imitate this but falls short and i don't know that the attribute that we're sort of circling around here is something you might call sincerity. Because I'm a pretty a big Black Crows fan, but I agree with Jeff's assessment of, of uh, attempting to emulate that. And, and there's something just so stripped down, sincere, and vulnerable about Tuesday's Gone. And the sincerity takes me again, you know, right, right back to Give Me Three Steps. I don't know if there's been a song like it that's about a... Take every song you've ever had about... Uh, about a barroom brawl. You know, you don't mess around with Jim by Jim Croce where <laughs> somebody comes in and just asses are kicked from top to bottom. And pardon me for going too far afield, but the first thing is you guys were talking about how it, it, with Skinner, it's a real world experience where a guy who probably has X amount of toughness is up against somebody who has 
multiples of that because he has an actual <laughs> weapon and the first thing yeah is, x amount of toughness versus y amount of gun exactly right that is an equation where the mathematics will always work out the same way right. and and pardon the departure here but that takes me to the absurdity of coward of the county god bless Kenny oh rogers but here's where tommy you know, Tommy, who is apparently, you know, maybe five, five in a you know, bucket a quarter, comes in and, and lays waste to the Gatlin boys just because he's mad. Becky has been horribly wrong, but this this slight, cowardly guy suddenly one day goes in and beats the holy you-know-what <laughs> out of three ostensibly larger. That never happens. <laughs> give, give me three steps. Is that happens every night. Every night, especially if it's me. <laughs> hey, Scott, any thoughts before? Oh, okay, okay, you know what? My question is... Does anybody want to try to attempt to make some big, grand statement about Freebird? Because uh, we can't leave the album with actually, without actually just like addressing this one head on. The charging rhino of the Leonard Skinner catalog. I, I'll say two things about Freebird and then leave it open to, uh, to further comment. Um, it Holds Up is, is one of those things. It's, it's a great song. Uh, you have to kind of get through what Jeff got through with the lighters in the crowd and the and you know people shouting through. It, it still is a tremendous song. But those solos at the end that last you know more than half the song, they were added added on. You know it was to give Ronnie a break in concert, which actually wouldn't work out yeah. well because it would be a closer for the rest of their career. So he got no break. It was the end of the show. Um, but that 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 end when everything's ramping up and the tempo's speeding and the drums are pounding and finally it emerges into that last final minute of soloing, oh, it doesn't get much better than that. Now, now there are three versions of Freebird that you might know, right? The one on uh, pronounced, which is a little over nine minutes. There is one on Skinner's innards, which for whatever reason, I remember exactly as being 10 minutes and 7 seconds. It doesn't fade like the one I'm pronounced. It has this 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 cold close where they sort of ramp up and dun-dun-dun, right? And then if you had uh, either the live album or, as I did growing up, Golden Platinum, a uh, double CD of essentially Skinner's Greatest Hits with a couple of live versions thrown in. The live version on Golden Platinum is the live version from uh, One, One More From the from road. road, which is like 14 minutes 14. and 9 yeah. seconds. And you get Ronnie, of course, asking everybody, what song is it you want to hear? So I grew up listening to all three versions of Freeboard. 9 minutes, 10.07, and 14.09, and they're all fantastic. The 14-minute long one doesn't really ever strike me as being longer than the original. <laughs> no, it, it, that is exactly the measure. I was about to ask that that's five minutes of difference. 
five minutes that is longer than the average record that's ever played on the radio. <laughs> is there an ounce of fat? It's all muscle. It's all great. Let me tell you from, uh, and I don't know if it, this is probably as good a time as any, but one of the things that vaulted Skinner to incredible instant fame, and this is a tour that I saw December. It was that they, they, they opened for the who on, on the, the quadrifidian tour. tour. I saw it at the Capitol center in December of 1973. Hey, that and show he, was taped by the way, that, 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 that for the who, at yes, least sir. that's one of the yes, very sir. few ones. Exactly right. And, and kind of like uh, later on, I would see ZZ top open for kiss and other strange pairings, but it vaulted them to popularity. And, and when we, came out of there freebird had become a live staple but I, I guess the reason i bring this up is that you're talking about you know how do you tie a bow around freebird i think that most of the aura and the magic and the legend of freebird has come from the decades since uh because the, the, one one more from the road was recorded in 1976 at the fox theater and by then already you got people yelling freebird freebird it had not yet become the stuff of parody where people will yell that out at I believe one of the Nirvana appearances at the <laughs> MTV Awards or something like that or in a story that's often told uh, a, a, a concert by Bob Dylan and his band somebody yelled out Freebird yep. and they obliged by actually <laughs> playing it yeah. uh, so I think all of that has come in the decades since but I think it stands right now just, just whether measured by 1973 standards or it's staying power ever since as one of the live staples by anybody in in the Frampton, do you feel like we do uh, uh, vaults so that that kind of signature thing where you know you're absolutely you know, uh, uh, Petty's American Girl is always going to be the last song they play, and it stands up decades, decades, decades later. I read a great article in, in the Wall Street Journal recently. It, it's an older article. It's like from the early 2000s or something. Uh, somebody sent it to me on Twitter about. Uh, how bands deal with the freebird phenomenon uh yeah interviewing you know various musical artists who are like you know you're out there on stage you're giving it your all like you know you're really into this is your music you're expressing yourself and then out from the from the back of a darkened theater you hear freebird <laughs> like 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 what do you do do you do you rant at the audience do you blow it off you pretend it doesn't exist and of course one of my favorite responses is just like what you described mark it's like somebody says like the way you really get them to stop saying freebird all the time is that when they ask you just play it and, and you, you don't you don't don't play an edited version you give them all give them all 10 minutes of that you give them both horns and then they'll they'll stop asking for you to do it, you play it and in fact the story is told of a chicago forget the guy's name he was on kevin matthews yeah, evan, yes evan, he, he, this, this became a running bit yep. where he'd say listen what you need to do is you need to start going to like the chicago symphony as they're rolling out the best of zavaldi and have somebody <laughs> bark that out from one of the balconies or something like that so uh, it's it's that's that the that's the stuff of legend. Now. In fact, I think the article even covered that. Like, how did the how did this thing get started? And yeah, they said it was that DJ. And he said he he felt guilty because his original intention had only been like you should only do this for like crappy acts. You, sh you shouldn't you shouldn't do this when like you know Bob Dylan is on stage. But of course, you know, as with all things, you know, once the masses get a hold of it, the, the original it. the original intention gets perverted. Life of its own. All right. Well, this brings us to um, uh, an album as as good as Leonard Skinner's debut album was. I don't know if we'll all agree on this. I think we might. There's a high possibility of it. Uh, their sophomore effort is somehow even better than their debut. And that, of course, is Second Helping. Came out the next year, 1974. Everybody who 
like is only a sort of a mild fan of Leonard Skinner, probably just assumes like Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, that's probably from their debut album. Nope, they saved it for the second record. This is the song that opened Second Helping, but Second Helping is so much more than just Sweet Home Alabama. There is not a bad song on this. Like literally, I could put all eight tracks on their greatest hits. Every single one is good. I think they played every single one live except for the Ballad of Curtis Lowe, which is a great song. They did it one time. One time. Exactly right. That's what I heard. Just one I guess time. And, I, and I don't know why. I it's probably not a stage why. number. It's a little too quiet, you know, mm-hmm. probably like, you know, kind of slows the momentum down or something like that. But man, everything else on this record is great. Uh, the, the one someone else can start on Sweet Home Alabama because aside, I'll talk about the Neil Young angle because I, I love Neil and, and, I, and I love the way that the, the band dynamic between Leonard Skinner and Neil Young ended up developing but uh, you guys can handle that. I want to focus on working for MCA and the point I want to make about this is that we talk about how Ronnie Van Zandt is so central to Leonard Skinner as a band but I will argue that their real secret weapon was Ed King. Absolutely. Absolutely okay. true. And I, he, he, he ended up quitting after the next album because I mean, obviously they were button heads or something like that. Who who the heck knows what that tour bus must have been like? I can only imagine the drugs and the fist fights. And God only knows, right? But uh, Ed King, he wrote Sweet Home Alabama. He wrote the music for that song. He wrote uh-huh. the music for Working for MCA. He wrote the music for Swamp Music, which is on the second side. That's the, you know, three of the best songs in this album. He also did I Need You, which I also really oh, like. So it's a little slow. So good. It's much, so it's, good. I mean, half of the songs on this record are his musical ideas. The guy doesn't get the credit he, he deserves. And I am stunned by the power of that working for MCA riff and also the fact that they got away with that lyric, which is basically saying, here, you know, sign on the dotted line, boy, sign your soul away. And now here we are working for MCA. And uh, the MCA record label is like, all right, you know, if it shifts some units, that's yeah. fine. We don't care. They didn't care. at an MCA talent show where they, they were showing off their new artists and all the people they were proud to have on MCA and it was the first time they played working for MCA and they blew away the crowd. Now, I'm not sure how much they were paying attention to all the lyrics, right? Yeah, the first time they hear it, but I mean, you can understand them being blown away by the music. Working for MCA would be their, their uh, leadoff track and on a ton of live shows the rest of their career. It's one of my favorite first 15 seconds of a song Absolutely. that I can think of. The, the, the opening. Oh. Go ahead and finish your sentence. And then I've got oh. a lyrical point. To yeah. And the, and, the, and the growl. Uh, that and then. Uh, uh, 
uh, Meadows from Joe Walsh. The, the first 15 seconds of Meadows is, but that's mostly because Joe Walsh is being a crazy Joe Walsh for those 15 seconds. But this, musically, is hard to beat those first 15 seconds. I, I just love working for MCA and, and sign on. And I know Mark's going to echo this in a second, probably. Uh, Ed King is just so, so integral to their success, to, to the songs. He wrote Saturday Night Special, too, from the very next album. Oh, but um, wait until I get to that one. I got the, a lot to say. The oh, only, boy, you know, <laughs> boy, do we. <laughs> the only guy not from the South, though. He's from, he was from California. Yeah, he was, the, he was the only non-Southerner in the band. And then, of course, like it's so funny because because then Ronnie takes his lyrics and he he writes that song like, "Along comes Mr. Yankee Slicker, saying, you know, maybe you're what I want. Want you to sign a contract." And that 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 that's the contrast, by the way. That verse is like mm-hmm. a really great hard rock verse, but then it it, it goes into like a chugle for the for the chorus. That is such a like a clever combination of two really memorable riffs into one song. Uh, this is what I mean when I say these guys are so much smarter songwriters than people give them credit for. But but, but Mark, what was that point you were going to no, make? No, it, it goes as follows, because you talked about the notion of them sort of screening this and letting the folks from MCA uh, understand this record. It, one of two things is true. They either were visionaries with really thick skin, where they said, hey, it kind of takes a poke at us, but it'll, it'll accrue to our mutual benefit, or they were simply completely <laughs> oblivious as the Yankee slicker that you mentioned. The Yankee slicker with a big old southern grin. They're going to take me out to California, going to make me a superstar, just pay me all of my money, and Mr. Maybe You Won't Get a Scar. <laughs> Here is the band confronting phony, worst uh, caricature ever of record executives, perhaps even threatening them with violence, and the record company said, yeah, I think we could go with this. <laughs> this is... Uh... This is one of my favorite albums. I think it's Skinner's best, and it, it is just one of my all-time favorite albums, period. As Jeff mentioned, any of these tracks you could put on a Greatest Hits album, they'd stand alongside anything else. Um, this is the first of the three guitar attack with Ed King and uh, uh, Alan Collins and Gary Rossington. It can be difficult at times to pick out who's doing what on these albums. Uh, both of both Rossington and Collins are, are, are playing Gibsons usually. Uh, Rossington's on a Les Paul uh, it's a fire firebird for uh, for Collins. Ed King is playing a Fender. Sometimes you can sort of pick and choose. I can hear Rossington coming through in, in a lot of places. Generally, Ed King has the cleanest, clearest tone on a lot of these songs. You can kind of hear it on Working for MCA. That solo is a, is a King solo. Very clean tone. He's a great slide player, too. He, he plays the slide on Don't Ask Me No Questions oh, yeah. on, uh, on Second Helping. Which somehow stiffed as a single. How does that happen? A song like "Don't Ask Me No Questions" doesn't doesn't rocket up the charts. It didn't. Um, and then, um, I, oh, Jeff mentioned "I Need You," which I'll stop and pay tribute to here. Oh, I, there are so many great songs here, but I return to "I Need You" so often. You know, it scans as a as a love song. Right? I, I love you. I need you. I miss you more every day. You read the lyrics, and it's a love song. And of course, musically, it is something totally different it is so sinister sounding it's dark and and of course that love and need comes through in a much more obsessive way a much darker way so many killer licks all over it's another king co-write with uh, i think rossington wrote a little bit of i need you as well um and you kind of hear that clean uh king guitar soaring over that that big big bass not bass guitar but bass you know uh rhythm that rossington Mm -hmm. lays down i need you is so so good it feels so 
You know, just to invert what you're saying about I Need You, Sweet Home Alabama is the exact opposite for me, where like the music itself is so smooth and mm-hmm. breezy and love that people don't remember or maybe never pay attention to what the lyrics are actually talking about. I had this nightmare the other day where I was thinking like, you know, 40 years from now, maybe every, the only thing that people are going to really understand about Sweet Home Alabama is that it was the music that was a soundtrack to that Reese Witherspoon film. You <laughs> or, know? That, or that Kid Rock swiped it for his uh, All Summer Long song. Yep. Exactly. It's that just, Werewolves of London, exactly right. But like the context of that song is, is, is becoming, I guess, you know, harder and harder for people who aren't you know, OCD music fans to really, or political fans political like junkies to really understand you know the whole part about the, the the first verse where you know i heard mr young sing about her uh, and i heard old neil put her down and i hope neil young will remember a southern man don't need him around anyhow now that's of course all about the trip that neil young was on his own bizarre trip during the early 70s when boy one day we'll do a neil young episode of the <laughs> three-parter but man i, I can't wait because i love him uh, but of course you know it wasn't just southern man which everyone knows southern man better keep your head Head, uh, which is just kind of in its own way one of the more bigoted things I've ever like heard. You know, he just thinks like the, the the entire South is just like people burning crosses mm-hmm. and like worrying about like you know like miscegenation and you know like you know cotton fields where people are like you know being having whips cracked on them. It's just weird fantasy. Uh, but of course, there's also the song Alabama, which I think is really where Sweet Home Alabama comes uh, from. With the song on Harvest, where it says Alabama, you've got a wheel in the ditch and a wheel on the track. You know. You're basically you're a broken down truck you know you know and you know nothing is there's nothing to to admire there's nothing about you that's any good it's like a weirdly hateful song and i think like young himself is has never been entirely comfortable with them oh, he, he's expressed outright regret he has said i listen to that now and it just is wrong i mean you're not gonna have neil young you know flagellate himself with apology but he says <laughs> what he was talking about banjos playing through the broken glass yeah exactly it's like it's like a deliverance Image. Exactly. Like, See yeah. the old folks tied in white robes. Gee, I wonder what that's talking about. He, he says that it was just where I was at the time, and I, I didn't have the restraint that I would have practiced now. Uh, and, 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 well, let, let me ask you this. What is y'all's understanding? Was this completely faux tension between the Neil Young camp and the Skinnerd camp, or was there a wink and a nudge behind that entire well, thing? I think, I think it developed into that. I think when, when uh, Ronnie Van Zant wrote those lyrics, he was kind of like saying, who is this Canadian <laughs> yep. to just like you know come down and like say like you know like you know because uh, you know ronnie van zandt is actually you know politically he's a pretty enlightened guy he's, he's, he's you know in favor of like gun control and he didn't like he, he, when they says like in birmingham they love the governor it's boo 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 mm-hmm. and we all did what we could do okay <laughs> so it's not like he's like you know some guy who's marching around with a cross and planted it on people's lawns and he's just like who the hell are you to come down and condemn everyone my friends my family all those us in the south and that's where it came from originally and then neil young heard the song and of course this is the famous part neil young wasn't offended at all he thought i was like man that's a great song and i think neil young actually has played it live in concert i have a recording of it from like 1977 oh, right man. after right after the plane crash i think neil young covered sweet home alabama as a tribute to the band and uh so like you know they actually got to be pretty friendly over time and you know and, until you know the tragedy took the band's career away but uh yeah that song it, you know, I'm just talking about the lyrics, and of course, if it was just the lyrics, it would you know, it would be an academic debate. But of course, everybody loves. That. I mean, that's is that is that the greatest is that the greatest rock song to come out of Muscle Shoals? You know, not a soul song, but the greatest just mm. pure rock song to come out of Muscle Shoals. I'd say yeah, I'd say it, yeah, it, it is. is. 
thing, and I don't know where a parallel for this exists at all, especially now lots of songs talk about stuff in the news either directly or, or with a kind of a wry sideways glance. But for them to be singing, Watergate does not bother me on a song recorded in June 1973 as the Watergate hearings were stopping down every household, uh, obliterating every soap opera, filling every uh, uh, coffee conversation. And then you get the release uh, of, of Sweet Home Alabama in, in the summer of 1974. Nixon was still president, spiraling ever downward. He would resign at the beginning of August of 1974, and there's Skinner singing, Watergate does not bother me which interestingly to the to the age group listening they probably all hated nixon but they knew that ronnie was not saying that watergate doesn't bother him because he's a nixon fan he just said i, I i'm i'm operating on another plane i am i'm finding different things to care about than just what passed for the the news nuggets of the day and that's i think it's also very much a um, like a, a clean up your own backyard comment too right the, the next yeah, one does your conscience bother, bother you? you right i mean so, if you're going to come at us you know down in alabama about about what's happening up there you know nixon whatever doesn't bother me but you know he's your guy how about, how about that right um, yeah alabama didn't vote for well, actually everybody voted for nixon in 72 right. to be fair so <laughs> yeah, everybody, seriously i can't remember there was the one state that didn't but you know uh, but uh, so yeah but the thing about this album is that even though that's of course the not only the most famous song on it but the most famous songs leonard skinner had ever recorded uh, as we said, everything else is great. The second half of this record has got a lot of songs that are much more obscure that you probably haven't heard. I can't find a flaw with any of them. I, mean, I think Swamp Music is the most generic name for an incredibly fantastic song. <laughs> and I wish more people heard it. Again, this is Ed King coming to the rescue with just yep. another great series of riffs. And then call me the breeze. What a wonderful breezy ending! Just the kind of the, the that 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 chuglin thing that they almost seem like they could rattle off in their sleep. I got to talk about uh, needle in the spoon, uh, which yeah. is different. Speaking of Neil Young, uh, you know, needle in the damage done. Needle in the spoon. This is one of my favorite uh, Alan Collins uh, co-writes. Collins does the music and Van Zant, of course, uh, the lyrics. And this is one of the um, uh, not say mysteries, but. There are many lyrics in uh, in Leonard Skinner's career which which don't exactly comport with how they were conducting their own lives, um, and the needle and the spoon is certainly one of them. It's it's a cautionary tale, and I love the way that Van Zant changes things each chorus. Right, first it was the needle and the spoon, then quit the needle and the spoon in the chorus, then don't mess with the needle and the spoon. Um, but Collins has a great this wah wah solo on it, this uh, kind of uh, psychedelic uh, with, with southern rock thrown in. 
that is just a great, great song. It's, it, it almost turns that Sweet Home Alabama riff a little sideways, too. It, there are echoes of that song in, in the way Needle in the Spoon plays out as well. But from the back half of the album, Needle in the Spoon is, is one of my favorite all-time skittered songs. It's interesting. There, there probably is a doctoral dissertation that can be written about artists who wrote songs that were cautionary tales about drugs <laughs> while doing drugs, yes. cautionary tales about drinking while getting drunk on a daily basis. And I don't know if that means were, were they a phonies, or I think the better possibility is B that they were conflicted. They knew full well the dangers of what they were doing and almost felt a responsibility to telegraph that to others, but it didn't mean that they had the willpower to kick mm-hmm. the habit themselves, if that makes any sense. I mean, I completely agree with you about that, and, and I'm glad that we don't have any, uh, you know, gun murders in the history of Leonard Skinner because it might throw the, uh, the 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 lead track from their next album into some rather painful relief. And that, of course, is a Saturday Night Special off of Nothing Fancy. I figure we got to go to this album. Uh, Can we this- do one thing? Can we do one thing? Because I I can't chase sure. this goodbye completely. Oh no! Uh, call, here's why: because call me the breeze. About a, oh. not about a two and a half minute J.J. Kale song, I believe, from his uh, from his album called Naturally. Everybody go download J.J. And it's very J.J. Kale. It's very mellow. I'm not mellow. It's very subdued. It's just kind of shuffling along. Oh, me, the breeze. But then put that in the hands of Skinnerd, and it's one of those records where it's like nobody else could have done it and nobody else should do it again. I think Call Me the Breeze is an exercise in, in 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 musicianship, and I don't. And, and we've we've talked a lot about uh, about Billy Powell. The keyboard work uh, in, in the last two minutes of "Call Me the Breeze" are as good as piano gets in rock and roll. They just are, and it's there's just unbelievable joy. And this comes close to uh, perfection in terms of what an ideal rock song should do it it's carefree it's a great driving record i keep blowing down the road just all the way down to the bottom and mr breeze it, it is the perfect end to the perfect song at what is as close to the perfect skinner album as you get
let me ask one more question before we go to nothing fancy. And that is, I mean, I, I'm looking back and we've discussed this for like a half an hour. Um, why, why isn't Second Helping considered more often among the, the great classic rock records? Unless I'm missing think, a giant part of the conversation. I, I never hear it spoken of as being in that, in that upper echelon, the, the top tier. But it, it absolutely is. I think it's because people do two things. A, I think they have a tendency to denigrate Southern rock. And let's be honest, there's probably some cultural snobbery going on here. A lot of the really smart rock critics don't do this. Like Chris Gow, for example, thought Leonard yes. Skinner was one of the great yes. bands of his era. I think he's, he's always, he, especially in the 70s, his, his finger was usually really well placed on, I think, you know, good taste. Um, but like a lot of other people just look at this stuff. It's like, oh, well, that's just simple good times music. That was why I was at such great pains at the beginning of the show to, to, to point out that this is such an intelligent band in terms of their music arrangements and even their lyrics uh you know and you know you know don't be fooled by the image oh these are good old boys from the deep south now this is really intelligent music so i think yeah critical and cultural bias is a big part of it i think the other problem is is that you know like a lot of bands that died young uh, like, you know, say, like, I think I remember a joke someone once made about the doors. They said, you know, like, you know, you know, looking at all of the compilations of doors music that have been released yes. since 1972. Somebody says, well, you know, Jim Morrison, that's what you get for dying on your record. Label. Um, <laughs> you know, and so like, think about like, like the hundred different Leonard Skinner yep. CDs that you could go out and buy. And so what do you do? You end up thinking of them as like, well, this is a compilation band, yeah, yeah. which is, you know, probably a retro It's it's, it's the, it's the disease of our sort of post-album era, our compilation happy era that then turned into like you know the music on demand by this one track era. So people don't listen to albums anymore; they just go, "Give me the hits and only the hits," and you know they're not going to sit still for a ballad of Curtis Low, which they should. So they don't realize that there's so much more on these records than the stuff that you hear played 30 times a day on classic rock radio. So I think those are the two. I elements. think that's completely sound, and and, and it's funny I just the album we cannot leave I, I just get just 30 seconds if i may about curtis lowe this was written uh, the the curtis lowe was fictitious of course but he was an amalgamation of people that you might have found out at a a store on the west side of jacksonville and in doing the writing on that they all got together and they i think it was alan collins in particular who said, uh, who got together with lyricist Ronnie Van Zandt and said, let's give this guy a name. And Curtis sounds very much like a black guy who might be playing the Dobro in the 1960s. But let's give him the name of the Jewish movie theater chain. And they said, it'll be hilarious. And, and, and that's exactly what it is. And, and that pro people probably, that probably just goes, whoop. But there aren't a lot of guys, you know, in, in the American South named Curtis Lowe, L-O-E-W. <laughs> and it just made, it was just another wink and a nudge. And it's just a wonderful uh, salute to the very, very black roots uh, of so much rock and even so much Southern rock. And at some point we got to get probably to a, a chapter on, on the Confederate flag before we're all beat, beaten down by that issue. But I remember some comments that members of the band had about that. And I always pointed to Curtis Lowe and various other things and said, yeah, tell me these guys are racist. Tell me these guys are racist. He looked to be 60 and maybe I was 10. Mama used to work me, but I'd go see him again. I clap my hands, stomp my feet, try to stay in town. He'd play me a song or two, then take another drink of wine. 
that but like they were like way out ahead i mean they, they, what's the song uh, about things going on things going, going on the first yeah. album yep yeah if you ever been to the ghetto well then if you haven't you better shut up because you don't exactly realize that right. there are things going on there that you don't even understand so it's like that was their first album so yeah, like they, were, it, it, they were as environmentally and socially aware as as anybody <laughs> certainly and probably far more so than anybody in, in the southern rock genre okay sorry i didn't mean to bother you no that's all right <laughs> but but this of course brings us to like the, the, the you know, so that the first half of skinner's career these two albums and as i think scott pointed out like these songs are songs that they had been playing around with in some form or another not all of them but most of them they'd had kicking around for years they were rehearsed to an icy diamond art perfection and then of course then, then that moment comes where you're like all right uh, now we got to come up with a bunch of new stuff and so a lot of people treat the next two albums in skinner's career as like well they're just not as good it's looser they're clearly having to write on the road it doesn't really work as well and i don't know if i agree with that at all i look at an album like nothing fancy and i say to myself okay it's not as good as second helping what is um this is a fantastic album however in my mind and again i don't think there's one song on this record that i don't like and that's cheating woman mm-hmm. all right and, and i find cheating woman to be a problem only because it, it like the context is, is hilarious it's like, <laughs> in the annals of rock hypocrisy following up saturday night special which is an amazingly brilliant anti-gun lyric with cheating woman who's like you know just to pick up one sample lyric it's like i'm gonna get my pistol girl i'm gonna shoot you and end your world won't bother me poor no won't bother poor me no longer i'm gonna shoot you uh that's that's a world-class move of hypocrisy so like you know who the heck understands why they did that why did you make me Every other song on this record is still pretty great. I think it also ends with one of their most underrated songs that no one talks about in Whiskey Rockarola. But, you know, let, let's take it from here. Scott? I... These, these two albums, Nothing Fancy and Give Me Back My Bullets, they both have really good songs. I wonder if they were on a more, um, uh, more, well, the, the way albums are put together now, every two years, every three years, if they weren't having to crank out an album a year, if these albums together wouldn't have been just about as high of a, of a watermark as the first two, it would be close, right? Nothing Fancy uh, went to, into the top ten, sold a bunch of records, um, and there's a lot of high points on here, too. First record with Artemis Pyle playing drums. Uh, uh, Burns left uh, in January of 75, and this album came out later on in 75. The thing about this album, which is different from the first two, of course, is that 
they had no songs when they went to record Nothing Fancy. When they went to record Pronounce, they had uh, eight years worth of songs, and then Second Helping had a few of those left over. But they went to record with Al Cooper, Nothing Fancy, and they literally had nothing. They had nothing. And uh, Cooper left. He said, look, we've got 30 days to, f- to finish this, this record. I'm giving you two weeks. Write these songs. I'm going to come back, and we'll take two weeks and record them. And that's what they did. But so they weren't quite as slaved over as some of the songs on the first two records. Uh, and I think that shows in, in a few songs. Uh, Cheating Woman, one. I, I think On the Hunt, maybe another, where the songs don't, the songs just sort of simmer. They don't get necessarily to where they might have gone in a different writing environment. Uh, and so there are a few places like that on Nothing Fancy. But that said, Saturday Night Special. I know Jeff wants to talk a lot about that song, but that riff that Al, uh, that uh, Ed King wrote is amazing. Uh, and again, metal. it's actually like it's 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 almost like a heavy metal, a metallic. Yes. Riff. And you hear you hear the squeals of the guitar too, and that it's a new element in Skinner, and I love it so much. I uh, I, I heard him talk about uh, I heard Ed King talk about writing Saturday Night Special and the way they recorded a lot of songs in in the band was you know they they just they just get together they're in a room. And Ronnie Van Zant would be in uh, on the couch, and the, the guitarist would play some stuff. And if Van Zant liked it, he'd sort of give him a thumbs up and, and tell him to keep working on it. And if not, they'd work on something else. Well, he gave the thumbs up on that riff, and Rossington came in and, and gave that sort of uh, the, over the top uh, sort of sort of lead on that meaty, funky riff from uh, from King, and that's just a great great song. I'll let Jeff talk more about that later. But there are, there are two other songs I want to mention. Uh, Am I losing? is one of my favorite songs on this record for sure. It's a Rossington tune um, dealing with the, the traps of success. And it could be argued it's about, you know, Burns leaving the band, a childhood friend, a guy he played baseball with, uh, couldn't handle being around Van Zant anymore, couldn't handle being in the band. And, and Ronnie's saying, look, I'm the same guy I've always been. What? It's, it's, it's people around me that are changing and perhaps asking for things now, now that I'm a star. And that it's a very personal, introspective set of lyrics set to a really it's one of their more it's one of their more almany type songs, I think, musically. Um, and I really, really like the way that Am I Losing is, is pulled off. very quickly is I'm a country boy which sort of has some residence in 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 these uh, these days you know I used to live in Chicago the Chicago area and I live in Hillsdale Michigan which is a town of 8000 it is the biggest city in the county and the closest big city 
20,000 people, is 45 minutes away. So I've seen both sides here. And, uh, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie's not putting anything down in I'm a Country Boy, but he's saying this is the right life for me, right? Uh, uh, it, it might be okay for you to live in those big cities and deal with those things, but as he says before the, the solo, I don't even want to read about it. Uh, he says he's as happy as he can be in, in the country. Uh, and, and there's a really thick, um, Les Paul tone that Rossington gets on I'm a Country Boy that just is pulled off so well. A couple of really nice highlights on Nothing Fancy. I don't like smoke, choking up my head. In some of those city folks, they don't care. I don't like cars buzzing around. I don't even want a piece of concrete in my town. So the, the first thing that I take a look at with, with nothing fancy is I, I don't want to have overstated uh, at the beginning when we talked about the the degree to which the second two albums are not as good as the first two. And that that's true in the way that, uh, I don't know, that, that, that a really good steak, a really good prime rib is not as good as a filet mignon, to use a clumsy <laughs> food analogy, because uh, both Nothing Fancy and Give Me Back My Bullets are thoroughly, thoroughly serviceable, wonderful albums that, that maybe coming from a number of other acts would have been would have earned a great deal of high praise it was the curse of early success that the first album was an instant classic second helping was the opposite of what usually happens i mean what's the term sophomore jinx usually someone's second album just is not uh, it just doesn't live up to what the first one is and this one did they were on an upward arc and so if you come out with something like nothing fancy released in in march of, of 75 uh you end up with with uh, the unfair phenomenon of disappointment and Saturday night special is great. I love cheating woman. And, and, and I, it's funny because I think Jeff actually put this on Twitter, the, the sheer oddity of, of, of Saturday night special, which, which talks about the evils of guns. And then on cheating woman, uh, you know, I, I'm going to shoot for cheating on me. I'm going to shoot you and your friends. It is the, the, the it's a head snapping 180. I mean, and, he just goes straight out and says, I'm going to end your world. I mean, it's, exactly. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty grotesque. And of course he died. As I said, like how did Ronnie Van Zandt think he was going to get away from, get away with this aside from the fact that he actually totally got away with it. So I guess that's probably why he thought he would. Com- completely, completely right. And I, I'll take a quick walk, work through the, the rest of them, but then we'll come back to Saturday night special with what may be a, a somewhat uh, surprising take that I have on it. And that is that when you go, through the rest of the tracks i think they are consistently good i like i'm a country boy i really uh, i think scott said that on the hunt seemed like uh not not mailing it in but just not a fold i absolutely love on the hunt and i'm and in fact we're going to be revisiting it later wink wink nudge nudge
Him, I lose and I like Made in the Shade. I don't think I um I don't think I like Whiskey Rock a Roller as much as you guys might. It, it it seemed almost uh it's like hey, here's what I am, an image song. It's whiskey, it's rock and roll. Make sure I mention those. If there's nothing the matter with it, it, it seemed it, maybe by the time I was consuming this, by now my senior year in high school. I, I was thinking, as you sometimes do, and it's probably horribly unfair, I was thinking, are these guys on a downward slope now? And how, how terribly unfair that is with such greatness that lay ahead. But I thought, I don't remember being as jazzed about this uh, as I was about the first two albums. Now, my, my, my theory on Saturday Night Special, quite frankly, is that this is not so much about gun control, even though Lord knows the lyrics talk about it's, you know, they ain't good for nothing. You know, let's, let's put them all in the sea. It seems very overtly, generically anti-gun. I think it's more about senseless violence. It's about not getting yourself into a situation where you are likely to wind up dead by your own bad decision-making rather than something that might have been written by Sarah Brady. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the issue about Saturday Night, of course, people, I mean, I guess it's something that has to be realized these days is that people may not know what Saturday Night Specials were. Uh, they were these sort of like, you know, historically, the the term applies to like really cheap, low-quality handguns. They're made out of like, you know, cheaper materials. They're <laughs> easy remember, to buy. I just, I, just as you're talking, Jeff, I'm sorry. I remembered the first time or one of the first times I heard Saturday Night Special, I actually went to the dictionary, I, I would say I'd go into Wikipedia, but I don't think it was around back then. But I went. I remember I went somewhere to, to look up what it was. I had no idea what they were talking about. Right, and it's like the kind of thing like where you're like you're drunk on a Saturday night, you're angry, you go buy a cheap gun or something like that. Um, and uh, this is, of course, I think that like the manufacturers of these guns were located in Florida too. So like that was that was part of why it was a big deal in like you know you know rural northern Florida and places like that. So anyway. You know, I, I, I think that I, you know, what he does actually come right out and say is like, you know, like handguns, they're made for killing, ain't good for nothing else. And, and then he even goes into suicide. It's like, listen, if you like to drink your whiskey, you might even shoot yourself. You know, just, again, people think like Leonard Skinner, those those good old boy redneck hicks. It's like, dude, this is a song from 1974. This is a, they're kind of like throwing you curveballs. But I have to say what, what impresses me most about this is the music on top of everything else.
Ed King, God, he is the secret weapon of this band. He leaves after this album. They go on a tour, apparently. It's like the worst tour of all time. Everybody's, you know, knocking everybody else's teeth out. And Ed King finally just says, screw it, I've had enough. But on this album, he contributes four songs. And again, they're almost, musically, they're like four of the best songs on the record. I mean, Saturday Night Special. And then there's there's Railroad Song, which I love so much. It's a, it's a tribute to all the classic sort of like 1920s and 30s, sort of Jimmy Rogers you know songs it even has a much more of a shuffly beat much less of like a hard electric groove than a lot of other stuff i think i think i think jimmy hot jimmy rogers actually gets name checked in the song <laughs> but it's you know just a typical thing like i've been riding the rails i get off at a town and the policeman says we don't want no hobos like you around but what a beautiful song and uh you know again one of those like little secret ones that hides on these records and you don't hear it because it, it's not on the greatest hits but then the other one he does is whiskey rock and roller and yes you know you know mark mark you're right i, I do like this song a heck of a lot more than you do <laughs> I, I love them i love the music to it yeah the lyrics are yeah, i guess they're sort of like rock and roll cliches it's true and for a band that usually kind of you know eschewed those you know it is worth pointing out that yeah these are kind of cliched but man the music in that chorus is is, is some of the the best and most anthemic stuff that leonard skinner did during their entire Entire career i really love it and again i cannot see this album as really being a serious step down from the first two even if it doesn't have like a sweet home alabama or a Freebird. it has a saturday night special on it it has a, a railroad song it has even am i losing another song no one talks about i love that little shuffle beat and that's a great song so I, I i'm just a big fan of this one and it was where i was expecting you know after you know being familiar with the first two albums but not so much with the rest of their career outside the hits this is where i was expecting to like you know kind of get kind of you know sandbagged get punched in the gut uh but i i experienced nothing like that whatsoever with the rest of their discography sometimes i wonder where will we go Real quickly to put a, a bow on the Ed King uh, tenure in in the band, what happened was around this tour, it's called the Torture Tour because of course they're they're Skinnered, and um, and <clears throat> R- Ronnie and Ed King's roadie ended up in jail one night, which was not an unusual circumstance. But they did not get released until like just before uh, the next show, and so Ed King's roadie wasn't there. He he played this show with old strings, ended up breaking a couple strings, played like crap. He knew it. And I guess Ronnie, after the fact, was just lambasting Ed King about playing a bad show and breaking his strings and ruining the show and all this stuff. And Ed King, Ed King, like you, you put my roadie in jail. What do you want me to do? And so he left 
that he, he literally left that night. He said he didn't want anyone to change his mind. If he stayed around the next morning, someone would have talked to him. And uh, I saw an interview with him from just a couple of years ago. And he said, look, if I left in the middle of a tour and a lot of the guys called me and Washington called and said, you come back. And he said, Ronnie never called me, never called me. If he did, he probably would have come back to, to the band. But he, Ronnie Van Zant never called him after he left the band. And that's why Ed King didn't return until the uh, reunion in the 80s. Man. You, you, you think about just chaos theory, about if, if this little thing doesn't happen uh, or if this other little thing does, what might have happened? One thinks, uh, well, well, I guess Ed King might have been on the plane. There's one of those things as we get dangerously close to that. But he, th- th- this is maybe one of the underappreciated um, elements of, of, of a review of Skinner. I mean, if you take a look, I mean, not that I'm necessarily drawing a conclusion, but if you take a look at Zeppelin, you're going to look at Robert Plant, you're going to look at Jimmy Page, you're going to, you're going to look at Bonham, you look at John Paul Jones, look at all the, the musicianship that's going on there. I think there's a lot of, of appreciation of Skinner that is really just a, 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 about a, only about one foot deep and and there's not nearly enough appreciation of Ed King, not nearly enough appreciation of Billy Powell, of, of Leon Wilkinson on bass. I, I don't think they are sufficiently viewed. This probably goes back to some of the, uh, the, 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 the starvation of praise that they had because of perhaps elitism. That's just a just a bunch of bunch of Hicks, bunch of West Jacksonville, uh, good old boys. Whereas all these names that we're mentioning and one that we're about to start talking about in just a little bit, the genius of Steve Gaines, the Skinnerd catalog contains just some of the best musicianship of the, of the last 50 years. I mean, I don't disagree, but for now, for now, Steve Gaines has not entered the story. We are back <laughs> to a six-piece band, only six members of this band, right? But, of course, the, the point of that is we have two guitars instead of three. And, of course, mm-hmm. this is the album, Give Me Back My Bullets. It's sort of universally agreed as the weakest of the Skinnerd records. And weak here, as I will argue, is a relative term. This is a good album. It's, it's more generic than the rest of their records, and I think that's the problem. So you have... Uh, uh, you know, like on the second side, there's a couple of st- songs like Double Trouble and Roll Gypsy Roll that are only okay. Mm-hmm. They're not bad. They're not great. But uh, the title track, which is another one of those, um, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, Van Zant lyrics about sort of abjuring violence. This is not like an, this is not anti-gun in the same way that Saturday Night Special could be seen as. And this is more of a metaphorical thing where he says, give me back my bullets, put them back where they belong because I'm not fooling around. I done had my fun and I don't want to see any damage anymore, any more damage done. You know, and he's basically saying like, I, I, I'm not going after revenge. I'm not tired. Of, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of raising hell. I'm tired of doing all the stupid stuff that I've been doing. And I'm just going to, I'm going to get my act together and living well is going to be the best revenge. So like, give me back my bullets is like lay down your arms, in other words. And it's also uh, apparently too not about literal bullets unless you count the ones in a magazine uh, i think van zant has said this and a few other people have explained that that what it refers to is essentially it's still around the same theme that you mentioned jeff but but that the band was ready to be successful again that they wanted um they wanted their bullets back and you know on the charts you know number 12 with a bullet and in, yeah. in the magazine it would actually have a bullet next to that number i'm sure not these days um and so <laughs> give me back my bullets is like hey we're coming back on the charts we're we're not going to party quite as much we're a little more focused you know put put the bullets back where they belong right next to the name leonard skinner we're, we're ready we're ready well, 
mean, the other thing I'm going to say about this is I think the most underrated song on the record is I Got the Same Old Blues, which is another J.J. Kale cover. And I think, I, I, I think, oh, there was a, hey, say hello to, say hello to your dog for me, Mark. Jimmy Christmas. I yeah. can't get control of my scene. Proceed. I will mute him and me. Go ahead. That's okay. Anyways, you know, Mark did make a great point earlier that J.J. Kale is an artist best appreciated by other people's covers of his songs instead of his own songs. And I think this is another classic example of this. This actually gets a little bit funky. It's a gut bucket blues, but it has my favorite secret instrumental weapon of the 70s, and particularly of 70s funk, and that is the clavinet. Yeah, yeah I love the clavinet. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I think it's... Um, I, I, who is playing that? I, it's it's got to be, I assume, Billy Powell, right? Powell? I, I would assume it's Powell. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, but like that's, it's, it's so far removed from the normal keyboard sounds that he brings to Skinner. And I love it. It reminds me of like Billy Preston playing on Rolling Stones records or like even, you know, you, you hear it in like Stevie Wonder's Superstition. You hear it in a ton of great like funky soul R&B music from the 70s. And then all of a sudden, bam, it's showing up in a Skinner song. And it works really well. Have you heard that rumor? But, you know, the rest of this album is, of course, the, the only one that doesn't have, like, uh, a major sort of headlining hit. Every other album has at least one song. You look on the back, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, I know that song. And this one suffers from the fact that it's the one that doesn't have that. Like, even Double Trouble, which is released as a single, ah, it's probably the, probably the least sort of the least distinguished of any of their singles, while still not being a bad song at all. Double, tr- Double Trouble is great. And in fact, on Double Trouble, you get uh, the Honkettes, who were Leslie Hawkins, JoJo Billingsley, and Cassie Gaines. She is a, a part of the Leonard Skinner uh, family before Steve is.
And, uh, and this is where, if I can just take two seconds to, to bury you in just a moment of, of the west side of Jacksonville. I roll into Jacksonville in 1981 to be the news director of, of WOKV. And within six months, I'm doing a talk show. I'm 25, and I'm sure the show is terrible. But one thing that it did give me the opportunity to do is run across everybody that ever hung with Skinner. I both lived and worked on the west side of Jacksonville on Lenox Avenue. And, the sto- and, and there were two kinds of people you'd meet, people who actually had known Ronnie and had known the boys or said they did it's like people who were at woodstock or or said they were but this was when i was there from 1981 to 85 uh you get the ascendancy of, of 38 special and molly hatchet and there's just one little behind the music songwriting thing uh dave lubeck uh, of Molly Hatchet told me in 1983 as they're getting ready to put out No Guts No Glory that Roll Gypsy Roll on Gimme Back is exactly what you see in the fairly familiar Gator Country there's a gator in the bushes mm-hmm. he called in my name that is from Roll Gypsy Roll Gypsy's life a story and it's one that's never told it even scans the same <laughs> he said we it was it, it, all these songs were in our heads. We totally took that for 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 one part of the Hatchet catalog, and and, and the only thing that occurs to me in in Gimme Back it, on every mother's son, it, we talk about the wisdom, if that's the word, of 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 Ronnie. Ronnie is so much deeper than. Uh, than appearances. Talk about not judging a book by its cover. On every mother's son, it's so introspective, a reference to, is this the end of the line? Of course, now that seems prescient because of what's about to happen, not too, too much longer. Ronnie famously, every, everybody always said, everybody that knew Ronnie said, his dad said it, his friends said it, it used to piss people off when he said it. He said, I will not see 30 years old. Mm-hmm. He used to say it all the time. I will not see 30 years old. So on this next to last studio effort, it, it's funny because hearing Jeff vouch for it to the degree that he has, I, I, I think it's possible there's probably a, 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 a term for this. I guess everything's relative. The first two albums were so great. The first two albums were such solid A pluses that it, even if this is an A minus or a B plus, it deserves not to be viewed as 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 some disappointment or some slump because from from got the same old blues to stuff even haven't mentioned uh, uh, that much. Searching and all I can do, all I can do is write about it. Is a wonderful record that Alan Collins wrote with Ronnie and just talking about it and hearing you guys talk about it by osmosis. Uh, I can feel my regard for it uh, rising. (laughs) 
This is a uh, this is a big Billy Powell album for me. He's so strong in so many ways throughout the catalog, but I think he's excellent here. Uh, he's really good on Every Mother's Son. Great piano part. Uh, that, that Every Mother's Son, which Mark just talked about quite a bit, is uh, that, that, that'd be a classic for any other band. And for Skinner, it's just kind of in this group of great songs they recorded, right? But any other band in this genre, that'd be man, that's that's a top song in their career. Uh, and it's here on Give Me Back, Give Me Back My Bullets. I think the title track is fantastic. I love that kind of ornery angry guitar riff and the way that the drum matches the vocal intonations on the on the chorus you know um cry for the bad man right toward the very end of the album uh the honkettes end up doing backing vocals on that song really wonderful guitar work uh with, with both collins and ross and did a, just a smoking solo on cry for the bad man too um you know uh, Say there's there's a worst album of these five albums. There's no there's no worst, right? But I, I I think if you're going to rank them one through five, I would I would have this one fifth. That's not to say it's not high quality. It's not to say it's not uh, it doesn't include some outstanding songs. But that's just that's just that's where I'd put it. Well, it's the curse of excellence. It's the curse of excellence in the way that I guess presence is the worst Led Zeppelin album. Ooh, you know. So, I mean, I guess we could probably make a whole Actually, category. Actually, you know, I, I, I gotta say, In Through the Outdoor is a pretty bad record. <laughs> I liked In Through the Outdoor. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Another chapter. Another chapter. Another time. Now, okay. So this brings us, of course, to uh, the the live album. And I gotta tell you, this is the biggest surprise of of the entire discography for me. Oh. I had never, I had never listened to one more from the road. Until we until we booked this show, I just looked at it and said, "I'm ah, a generic Southern rock live album." You know, I yeah, do I need this? Um, and so I never bothered to give it a try, and I never heard a single song from it or anything like that. And then I bought it, uh, and I just listened to it on Amazon, and uh, I was blown the hell away. <laughs> this band was amazing live, and these are amazing live performances. Now, of course, you have to understand, I'm hearing the deluxe reissue version, which is like the basic it's the complete show everything like arranged in order and then it, it ends with like alternate versions they did a three uh three st- three night stand mm-hmm. at the fabulous fox theater and famous theater in atlanta georgia i think was facing financial difficulties yeah, or something like that, that. So, so like you know van zandt you know said like okay we're gonna help you out we'll do like a charity show to raise money for it and then in return we're gonna just tape this and we get to use it for a live album uh, pretty great trade because the Fox Theater was saved, and this is one of the unexpectedly, for me at least, great live albums that I've heard in a very long time. Since we talked about almost all of these songs <laughs> in their earlier contexts, there's really not a lot to like discuss. But I've just got to say, if you like me are an aficionado of live music, uh, this is just this was a wonderful surprise. It's really great. If you go to YouTube, there's actually quite a few. More than yeah, the might... whole thing on YouTube. You can find the whole thing yeah, there. But there's a couple Was of different... this the first time that you had heard the full 14 minutes of Freebird from, from this show? Yep. Absolutely. How did it... How, <laughs> this is, this is incredible. What a, what a wonder if this is great. Because when I heard it, it's 1976. I'm 18 years old. And it's still ringing in my ears from having seen them in 1973. Saw them one more time in 75. That's the only time I saw Ronnie. After, I've seen them like three times in the, in the Johnny era, in the 90s, and the aughts. But it's, how did it strike you with Freebird burned into your brain as, as, a, as a wonderful nine-minute studio record? How did, how did the 14-minute live version strike you? 
Well, it was as I just said. I mean, a little earlier in the show, I was like, like I heard that you know, there's the 14 minute version, there's a nine minute version, and like they don't, it doesn't sound appreciably longer to me. It's not like I'm like sitting there like kind of impatiently tapping my fingers. <laughs> no, I mean it's like it, it, it's all the play out. I mean that's where the extended part comes, and of course there's actually a little bit of intro where like, yeah, you described it already. It's like what song do you want to hear, and then the crowd goes "Free Bird." He's like, I can't hear you, something like that, and they're like "Free Bird." You hear the crowd going nuts, but like yeah, uh, most of the extra music is just more guitar heroics and they're never self-indulgent it's like the pure excitement everything works it's a wonderful wonderful performance and it, it only the only thing that disappoints me is finding out that apparently there was a little bit of overdubbing that went on after the fact because the actual the reissued album gives you the unoverdubbed version uh, at the end of the concert and then Disc two ends with the other. I think the the uh, the one that was originally on the the vinyl LP, uh, and you can you can hear that there's been a little bit of tinkering done with it. You know, just to make sure that the parts are truly perfect. But who cares, really? It's just a remarkable song. And also, by the way, they whip off a fantastic version of Crossroads, a song that I just assumed was began and ended with Cream, in terms of rock covers of Robert Johnson. But no, man, Leonard Skinner's version of Crossroads is is pretty fierce. I have to say, I was surprised that. Uh, they did a they did they did that song in a way that didn't make me just sort of like roll my eyes and think, well, I wish this was Eric Clapton playing this <laughs> instead of these guys. I went down to the This was, I believe, only Steve Gaines' third show with the band, and we'll explain uh, how he enters in just a moment. But he, he makes a big difference, and his playing is very distinctive on uh, on this live album. Uh, this is a good live album. I, I uh, you know, working for MCA's lead-off track, uh, you can see how good it is at opening a show. Skinner has the kind of catalog where you could just you know throw the song names at a hat and pick them out and you'd have a fantastic set list uh their, their songs are made to be played live right i mean there's you're you're they're made so the crowd can feel those riffs uh and this is these are tight performances the sound quality is excellent the one thing i'll say about the mix i, I think billy powell is too low in the mix in a lot of places on this album but on the other hand uh, Artemis Pyle is up in the mix, and it did make me realize how good of a drummer uh, Artemis Pyle is, especially on something like Saturday Night Special. Um, yeah. he, he shines very bright, uh, brightly on Saturday Night Special, but it's, it's a really good live album, absolutely. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And, and in fact, there is one I, I, I hesitate to mention it now. In fact, I'll save it for suspense because when we get to our five tracks that must be heard, it's one of them that's on here. And so I'll save that for a second because I, I think that the real magic of One More From The Road it is the Fox Theater. This is not recorded in some some 20,000-seat arena. Fox Theater's capacity there on Peachtree Street is about 4,500. It's the kind of venue that a band would play when they're on the way up and just about to break it big. And for, the, I guess, what was the guy's name? Alex Cooley, who comes out and introduces them, and he's the guy for whom this great favor was done. There's just this wonderful, wonderful uh, story that, that accompanies this. It just makes you view the music and view the occasion more fondly there in July. And, and it's kind of funny. I'm trying, maybe you guys know more about this than I do. How long does it usually take to turn a live album around? Because I think this thing came out in September of 76. It was recorded the first week of July. I yep. mean, they, they, they moved fast on this thing. I mean, Live at Leeds was recorded on February of 1970, February Valentine's Day, February 14th, and I think it was out by April. So, yeah, like, so. you know, they can, they, you can move fast if you really want to. If you want to, and they clearly did, and, and yet it was just a wonderful... And, and we also have producing this one also since Al Cooper had left this was also the producing of Tom Dowd whom the band just absolutely loved he was the guy who sort of was the, the father of multi-tracking and worked with so so many many artists and, and the real affection and the real chemistry between artist and uh, and producer was in evidence on this live album and then uh, boy it just uh, as, as I remember getting this just to place it back again in my old guy timeline I, I was in college now and then laying down the vinyl in, in the dorm room now and i would always go back to pronounced and always go back to second helping and always and, and, and i did not uh, throw shade or give short shrift uh, to, to to nothing fancy or give me back my bullets but this live album was a huge player on my dorm floor <laughs> because skinner had already had the, this this contemporaneous reputation as one of the better live bands anybody could see so I guess that brings us to the end of the road, and nobody would have ever thought it was the end of the road at the time because Skinner was almost like a band reborn. You know, Ed King leaves, and they have that one album where you know maybe they don't have a lot of the big hooks and, and the big tracks that you would have been expecting from a Skinner album. But but Ronnie Van Zant finds Steve Gaines, and Steve Gaines really rejuvenates this band as you know as a sounding board, someone to bounce ideas off of with Ronnie, and as a songwriter. And and what you get is Street Survivors, which is the, the album that ends their career. It came out three days before, I believe three, four days three before days. Yep. The, play, the plane crash. And this is a band that's back. This is a band like, okay, this is, this is just as tight as the first album. This is just as tight as Second Helping. It opens with a song that you've heard on the radio since you were in short pants called What's Your Name? And, and then it owns, and then, of course, the other thing about this album is all like the ominous vibes, almost the bad mojo. Like it, the cover is the band standing in front of like the streets that are covered in flames, you know, fire everywhere. It looks like, you know, it's like flaming wreckage or something like that. And then, of course, what's the lead single? It's that smell. The smell of death surrounds you. Now, the thing is, is that Zant, Van Zant was writing about drug use. In fact, he was clearly writing about other people in the band, you know, too much coke and too much smoke. You know, the smell of death surrounds you. There's an angel of darkness on you that stuck a needle in your arm. Um, that's the way he thought he was going to go out. 
And it's sad to say that he was right about not making it to 30, but I don't think there is any chance that he could have predicted that this is how he was going to go. What we're left with is an album that's overshadowed by the, you know, the the tragic plane crash. But man, this album is fantastic. And it is such a strong way for the band's legacy to end, even though it should never have been the end. is the new guitarist, Cassie Gaines' brother, and boy, he is just reinvigorating the band. He His playing style is different than Collins and, and Rossington, and different than King, too. He really adds uh, a jump um, and spring to a lot of these songs, and Van Zant loved him, uh, loved his talent, so much so that he allowed uh, you know, a, a Gaines uh, solo written song on the album, and allowed a a Gaines uh, sung song on the album and co-sang You Got That Right with him on the album. I mean, Steve Gaines was really a huge addition to the band. There's just just no two ways around it. Uh, And so there are many signs on Street Survivors of what might have been the next move. Now, before we get to sort of that, I mean, the album itself is great. They nearly blew it, though. Um, They they recorded a version with Dowd that... um, and it's available on the deluxe edition. Have you heard this? Because I haven't yes. heard the, the the quote original version, and yeah. I don't know how. Like, if you, you tell me, is it like? I've heard about terrible? it. I've heard it. It's muddy. Um, and and, and the band the band's live sound engineer told Ronnie Van Zant, "If you release this, your career is over." And Van Zant was going to kill him, clearly. <laughs> uh, and Steve Gaines said, "You know what? He's right." And so they they went back and re-recorded the entire thing, essentially producing the second version themselves. There are a few songs where there's not a lot of difference. What's Your Name is essentially the same in both versions. I think the the one uh, with Dowd doesn't have the horns as prominent. Uh, But like that smell specifically, if you go back and listen to the Dowd version of that smell, it is this kind of sloggy, dirgy... Um, it's, it's just it's it's much more it's much it's not slower. a single. It's not a single by any stretch, and the mix huh. is the mix is off too. The version of the album is clearly superior. So they they made the right decision, I think, by by re-recording a lot of these tracks. Um, that smell is so interesting to me because, yes, it is. Uh, a song that portends some some very bad things, and yes, Van Zant had often said he was not going to make it to thirty. But in this song, you've got uh, it's a Collins uh, right on the music, but the lyrics essentially, I mean, I don't know if they're it's a, it's a challenge in more ways than one, I think, because it's a challenge to quit ruining your life because Collins, Rossington, and Powell all were involved in car crashes in the in the six months leading up to Street Survivors, and at least two of those are pretty damn severe, and delayed the recording, 
And of course, you just have to understand, even if it's never explicitly spelled out, it's like they were on some serious substances when they got into these car wrecks. Yeah. You just have to assume they were high or well, drunk or Quaaludes whatever. Quaaludes in Washington's case, which is, it says in the bridge. Oh, they were. So actually, I didn't even know the details. I just, I just guessed. Well, yeah. I mean, right there in the in the in the uh, in, in the in the bridge here, they call you Prince Charming. That was Washington's nickname. And what can't, can't say a word when you're full of lewds. Uh, so you'll be all right. Come tomorrow, but tomorrow might not be here for you. That's directly Rossington's oh, story. Oak see, tree, yeah. oak tree, you're in my way. That's Rossington. He he had passed out because he was so high on quaaludes and and ran right into an oak tree. Uh, all that that that's all real stuff. But in a way too, I I I hear it as sort of a a challenge to 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 bring it right because Gaines is here now. Gaines plays that intro solo, and I know he plays at least the first solo on that smell. And he's just adding so much to this band that it's almost a a, a challenge too to to Rossington and Collins to hey get your get your act together stop crashing your cars and let's go right we're we're ready. Gaines is 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 adding. Uh, I know a little, and you got that right uh, to this to this album and and, and others. Let's go, uh, and that smell just just hits on so many levels. What's your name? Which you mentioned too, of course. The big the big single um, was written almost specifically to be a, a chart success, a, a pop, a more pop, a more commercial song. Those horns just blow you away. Uh, Rossington has that big riff. Gaines's strat just snaps all over it, and it's a great. Um, you know, it's a groupie song. What's your name, little girl? Um, shooting you straight. I don't, I don't know your name, but I'd sure like to see you next time. We're back in town. I mean, that's that's what's your name. There are so many good songs all over this album. I mean, one more time is this really uh, interesting track that reminds me a lot of some of the, like late '60s stuff. It, that's well, isn't a, the reason that it reminds you of late '60s is because it's actually like an outtake from 1971 or something like that. I, I just, I just it, when I heard it, it, could be this is this is this is the one album that I'd really not had any real knowledge other than the two big hits, and so I, I came back to it later, and I was. Just recently, and I was like, "Wow, this is really an incredibly good album." And then I listened to that song. I was like, "Oh, I really like that. It's a nice change of pace." And I look it up on Wikipedia, and apparently, <laughs> it's an outtake from their from before their first album sessions. Like, they, in fact, it, it like actually has like Ed King on it, and it has like uh, whoever that first drummer was that you know quit the band, you know, and like yeah, they just dropped it in, and uh, you know, didn't sound really you know that wrong. You know, slotted in with all the other more later period stuff. But yeah, it, it comes from a far different time of the band. Yeah. So I'll take the word of a liar one more time. One more 
There's a huge different vibe because because uh, Steve Gaines was from Oklahoma and you can hear back on one more from the road where he's introduced by Ronnie from the stage. He's at the Oki and then yeah, there's like says, a great I'm outtake where he says like I'm gonna send the Oki at I'm you when he can. Turn. I'm gonna sick an Oki on you exactly exactly right and there, the fondness uh, was it was just instant it was an instant connection. You got to figure that the Skinnerd family had probably been fairly tight knit. I mean these were people from Rossington to Collins and you know Ed was in and out. But when when you're in the family it, it didn't seem like the kind of place where you could easily uh, get street cred very, very quickly. But to have him share that vocal on You Got That Right with Ronnie, to give him his own song that closes out the end on Ain't No Good Life, it was just really, really clear. And as, as Scott said in the playing style, Steve Gaines just instantly brought a new and fresh, um, it was just kind of, uh, well, there, was, it, there was such promise here as Street Survivors came out and it looked like this... Uh, this is maybe one of the what if stories in all of rock and roll with with the, the comeback. Did not even want to talk about it as a comeback because the previous two albums is not like they were bad, as we've said 5,000 times. But critics really loved it. And I think everybody was ready to see this incarnation of Skinnerd carry out the rest of the 70s and go into the 80s, giving us who knows what kind of great material they might have given us. When an artist dies, there's a temptation. To, in fact, it's usually you fall into it, you know, to like say, well, what's the most recent album they have out? Like, oh, that's actually a wonderful album. That gets a sort of like, you know, fuzzy halo glow. Of course, the classic example of this is Double Fantasy with Lennon. Um, and, you know, okay, Double Fantasy is an okay album. It's not terrible. It's certainly better than I think what he'd been putting out prior to his retirement in the, in the mid-70s. But it's no classic and it's treated as if it's like uh, this wonderful thing what could have happened well I, I don't know I, I just don't know if John Lennon was really making truly fascinating music anymore at that point you know he made a lot of great music he owed nothing to anyone but I just don't think it was this one is not like that this one was treated you know it's the highest charting Leonard Skinner album what's your name went to I think like top 10 or something like that I think only Sweet Home Alabama got higher than that uh, the, the critical reviews of it were were just rapturous and of course it was all influenced by the fact that it dropped you know you know just a couple of days before you know the plane crash and you know all uh, you know you know, collins and uh not collins but just man sant and uh who's the other one who Stephen Stephen Cassie Gaines. Gaines, yes. Yeah. Before they died, and so your temptation is to think like, okay, maybe they're just being too kind to it. Maybe we're all just covering it with this little, this little retrospective glow because it feels bad to think about what was lost. But no, 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 no. Street Survivors is one of the best Leonard Skinner albums. It really is true that they were on an upswing and. The you know the bet that you would have placed is that their next album would have been even better or at least as good as this, and we'll never know. Let me say something nope. quickly God about uh, "I Never Dreamed," which is another oh, one of yes. Gaines songs. Oh, this song. is so good. I think uh, "I Never Dreamed" also gives a, a very clear picture as to what they could have done next. What something like um, something like I, "I Know a Little." I mean, no one else could play those guitar parts that Gaines played, and that sort of gave you a picture of where things might go with that style. I never dreamed 
It's just a beautiful song co-written by Gaines and, and Van Zant. That intro is is good enough by itself, where you have these three guitarists, uh, and Mark mentioned this earlier with the end of Freebird, but the beginning of I Never Dreamed are these three guitarists talking to each other through their instruments. I mean, they're absolutely having a, a conversation among themselves before the song even starts. Um, there's so many great tones in here. There's a, a, a middle solo, and I can't tell you for sure who played it, but it, it sounds a lot like Mark Knopfler's style. Um, there's little squeaks and these notes played, kind of a country rock picking, so it maybe it could have been Gaines, I suppose. Uh, the close just has an outstanding solo. Um, I Never Dreamed is just a real high point on Street Survivors. That's one of the skittered songs that does not get, uh, certainly played on classic rock radio, but I think gives a clear picture of how talented this this group was that that could have moved on. versatile they were because it, it, when we start talking about what some of our favorites are because the ones that I went through some of them are the rowdy west side of Jacksonville you know crazy rednecks but some of them are the more subtle more acoustically framed songs because there was just so much talent we've mentioned three guitarists so many times uh, for anybody else it would have been like overkill it's, it's kind of like two drummers I always thought that was just kind of a bit <laughs> kind of an affectation it never was for Skinner it never was. The individual virtuosity of these guys deserves its own chapter in the success of, of this band. And it's, uh, it's, it's just a remarkable thing to have, uh, to have witnessed. And 
And so that was the end for Leonard Skinner. And there was never any reunion. And there were, there were no uh, later albums or live albums or tours or bickering. Uh, that closes the chapter on, on this wonderful band. Uh, oh, yeah, so top top two albums, top five songs? No, I don't know what to say. Obviously, what? a decade later, there was a reunion, and then it led to some albums. And I think that they technically are still touring even to this day, but it's obviously not the same band. Yeah. Anybody have any thoughts about this? Well, let, let me talk about the, the plane crash just very quickly because it's October 20th, 1977. And, you know, reading more and more about this band, and I know Mark just saw the documentary uh, too. There are so many weird stories about this plane crash, both before and after. There are a lot of people, one of the honkettes and um, others saying they had really bad premonitions about flying and they were going to crash. And I guess the plane had been having some issues. They're going to have it looked at at the next stop. Rossington says, I think Collins and Powell refused to get on the plane that day until Van Zant said, look, we're going with or without you, essentially. And, and being the father figure, everyone listened and those guys got on board. Um, there's just so many weird stories about what, what happened leading up to that crash. Uh, what happened was they ran out of fuel. The pilots apparently miscalculated how much they had added and, uh, and, and ended up running out of fuel on the way from South Carolina down to Louisiana. Uh, crashed in a swamp, which made rescue extremely difficult. Uh, all indications are Ronnie Van Zant died instantly. Powell said later he was thrown from the plane and hit his head on a, on a tree and was killed instantly. There's some uh, stories where Cassie perhaps would have survived if they would have, if rescuers would have gotten there more quickly, but it was a swamp. They had to build roads to get out to, to get them. Artemis Pyle walks with three ribs sticking out of his skin to find help. The farmer, who he runs into, shoots, shoots at him, him uh, because he, he thinks it's some sort of rowdy hippie, right? Yep. And um, and so it just took it took a long time for help to get there. It's you know unknown how many would have survived. It was the two pilots. Uh, Gaines, Gaines, Van Zant, and then the band's road manager, who actually had been injured in some car crashes with the band previously, too. There were about 20, I think there were about 20 survivors who were back toward the, the back end of the plane, but terribly injured. Billy Powell nearly had his nose ripped off in the crash. Uh, Rossington still has steel, steel, you know, bar in his arm. Collins' injuries were just horrific. These guys were really, really beat up. And then you have people coming to the scene of the crash and looting the crash site, taking money, taking Leonard Skinner equipment, uh, literally taking the, the logo from the side of the airplane off with them as the rescue operations are going on. It is just an incredibly strange, unusual story about this plane crash, which in the end ends Leonard Skinner until the reunion, which we can talk about here in a minute. But you well, know. That, that kind of a, those stories about, you know, the, the folks who descended on on the crash site. This has echoes later on, because as I finally as I rolled to Jacksonville, moved in 1981, one of the first things I want to do is drive down to Orange Park, just south of uh, of the Jacksonville city limits and, and see the Ronnie Van Zant grave, right. which was, you know, pretty popular. And, and it, it wound up being vandalized. I think it was many, many years later. Uh, I mean, we're talking about pulling caskets out of the ground. Uh, Steve Gaines remains, uh, you know, I think the cremated remains scattered onto the grass. They had to move them. They had to keep secret where it was. I mean, the, the psychology of adulation is is a pretty interesting thing. It has an uplifting side and a dark side. But this this is probably one of those sort of tragic stories that's going to attract a, an odd element 
And uh, but but seriously, in, in coming into Jacksonville in 81, it was still a very, very fresh wound. And I was constantly running into people who uh, who, who, who knew either the Gaineses or Ronnie or somebody in the band. And Cassie Gaines' mom, I yes. I'm bl- yes. blurry on who it was, her mom died in a car crash really close to the cemetery. Yes. So there's just so many odd offshoots to this tragic story. And, and then after that is the, um, well, first of all, the guys didn't play for a while. They played one, essentially, reunion show. I think... Uh, uh, Charlie Daniels might have been involved with that. Did, uh, anyway, they 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 played this, this one show with everyone except uh, Gaines and, and and Van Zandt, and then essentially went dark. Uh, Rossington Callen started a band. Billy Powell uh, found found the Lord. Uh, played in a Christian band, I think called Vision for a while in the eighties. With with uh, played with Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad for a while, and then um, they do this ten year reunion tour in eighty seven with. Um, um, everybody except Collins, because by that point, Collins, uh, his wife had died uh, while pregnant, and Collins went in a downward spiral and ended up crashing a car, was paralyzed uh, in the mid-80s. He died in 1990, I believe, of, of pneumonia. And so Collins would only be, Collins did a, a deal with a prosecutor in which he was not, he killed his girlfriend at the time in that car crash. He did not face uh, prison time, but he had to to essentially give like don't drive don't drive drunk PSAs at all these shows they play. They'd wheel him up in his wheelchair and he'd give these this speech at all these reunion reunion shows. And Johnny Van Sant, Ronnie's brother, would play or would uh, would sing uh, and did an okay job. King was back for a while until Rossington displaced him at a power play in the mid nineties. Um, it's not as if the story gets a lot better from there. I mean, the, 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 in terms of deaths and people moving in and out of the band, it's just been a wild uh, set of set of years for the band. It's, you know, by the way, it, it, for those of you guys who are listening who are fans of Steve Hyden, who I think is you know, one of my favorite rock critics writing today, in his book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, he has an entire chapter devoted to like sort of this latter era of Leonard Skinner and sort of like the weird f- place that they exist in is this sort of bizarre nostalgia act that is also about I've been co-opted culturally into something that it was never meant to be and I think kind of also plays a role in the in in, in some of the reasons that people dismiss them artistically yeah. in a way that they shouldn't uh, it's really worth checking out it's a really good book in general but that chapter in particular is really excellent and you know it's kind of my only thought about <clears throat> this sort of like sad sort of reunion era of the band I've always been reluctant to to watch reunion acts you know even of my most favorite bands because i i just you know i have a, a jaded view of of how anything can be nearly as good as it was back during their heyday and uh usually doesn't steer me wrong my one regret is i missed the pavement reunion because that actually turned out to be great <laughs> beyond that though like yeah i don't have any thoughts about this this latter era of skinner other well, than the soap opera is sad yeah i'll give you i'll give you a couple of things uh as somebody who has seen the johnny van zant fronted leonard skinner three times i guess maybe mid-90s early aughts and then about seven or eight years ago um and this is probably generational keep in mind that when 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 the crash happened the average fan base of skinner was was between like 20 and 30 and so if if you go catch skinner for me to catch skinner you know in 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 2005 was an opportunity for you know 48 year old me 
to see Johnny, who looks and sounds sort of like Ronnie, do that incredible catalog. And it is the sound coming out of the speakers that made it happen. And it was a really, really special thing, even though, you know, the albums that they made, the 1991 album, uh, and then they started to slowly morph into a kind of a caricature, a, a quick walk. The Last Rebel in 1993 contains a piece of dreck called Can't Take That Away, where they talk about how everybody's trying to put away the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, not in my country kind of thing. In 90, Dude, they released an album called God and Guns. God and, God and Guns in 2009, where their conversion to bad Ted Nugent was complete. And I love Ted Nugent. I think there's some greatness in Nugent. Uh, and there's a tune on there called Skinnered Nation and That Ain't My America. I mean, oh <laughs> my Lord. But but there are two interesting things in there. In 1994, they put out a thing called Endangered Species, which is basically acoustic remakes mm -hmm. of the big songs with Johnny doing the vocals. And it was pretty okay. And then on the 20th anniversary of the crash in 1997, in come Ricky Medlock and Huey Thomason, both with from Blackfoot and the Outlaws, some pretty great pedigrees, and, and an album called 20, which is not bad at all. And, and, and I, I, you know, everything else is just kind of boilerplate Skinner tribute band. But that 20 album from 1997 deserves a few minutes of your time if anybody wants to do that as part of a revisitation of this, uh, this um, multi-layered story. And they are uh, reportedly, or at least uh, publicly, on their last tour. Uh, as we record this one. So perhaps wrapping things up well, shortly. They got sidelined by the virus. I mean, like everybody yes, else, yes. Did, they got sidelined by the virus. And they had released, a, they had a live album that came out last year called Last of the Street Survivors Live, L-Y-V-E, of course. Uh. And, and they, I know, I know. But you know what they did? And, I, and this, is, this is of nostalgic value because it's not a great song. But there's an accompanying video too. And it's called Last of the Street Survivors. And it's kind of a we've been through a lot. We remember our fallen brothers. We always had the music to get us through. It's very cliche. It's very hackneyed but it it can't not grip you. So if, if somebody wants to YouTube Skinner's Last of the Street Survivors, it's probably the, it probably should be the last thing they do before they enjoy a, a well-deserved retirement. Yes, I hope they've all been uh, investing well in their mutual funds. So you know, <laughs> hey, the market's recovered since yeah, the beginning of 2020. So maybe, maybe they don't have to keep doing this. <laughs> Scott. There we are. The Political Beats look at the uh, music and career of Leonard Skittered. We come to the point of the uh, broadcast where we give you the two albums that you must own, the five songs you should hear from Leonard Skinnerd. We turn it over to our guest. First, as always, Mark Davis, talk show host, 660 AM The Answer in Dallas, Fort Worth. Mark, your two albums, your five songs. And it's it's funny because in, in a, an album library that's really this short, we're going to have a lot of, of, of repetition. But it's funny, even as simple as the task was, I found myself thinking, all right, but which two? Which two? I knew that one of them was going to be the live album. I mean, it would be easy to go with the first two because I think pound for pound, that's where the most greatness is found. But if somebody is only going to have two albums, I want them to be one more from the road. And I want the other one to be, what's the coin flip? First album or second helping? First album or second helping? And the answer is second helping. Not just because of the great, and this is by a hair. This is a 5149 ruling for me because the first album is so great. And one of you may uh, 
may choose that one. But from Sweet Home Alabama to Call Me the Breeze, it, it, from the first to the last, just total, total greatness. Those would be my two albums. You want the five tunes in rapid succession? Here? Yes, please. Okay, uh, we're going to start. Uh, let's. I'm, I'm going to throw in Mississippi Kid. Uh, which has another gun reference. And in, in, in doing this, these are not my five favorite Skinnerd songs or even the five strongest Skinnerd songs. I want it to be five that I want to pay attention to amid all the conversation we've had. As, my essential message is we've talked about the whole library. There's iconic greatness in the whole library, but these are five that I want to make sure get some attention. Mississippi Kid is one where once again we turn to a little uh, gun imagery, got my pistols by my side. Secondly, I know there's going to be a repeat mention here, it is the incredible, you know, it may well be. The most famous songs are the most famous songs. It may be my favorite Skinner song simply is Working for MCA. It's such a wink. It's such a nudge toward the record industry. I can't believe they slid that by them. Absolutely incredible. My third is on Nothing Fancy, and that is the somewhat maligned by, I think, one of you. Not maligned, but, you know, sort of a brief meh. And that's, and that's On the Hunt. And I think On the Hunt is great, even though there is some sort of forbidden stuff in there. It's very sexist. It's very, you know, uh, 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 here are two things you should know. You must take pride. A horse and a woman, both of them you ride. I mean, you can't write stuff like that now. And it was almost a disqualifier for me. But, you know, my daddy told me long ago, if you want to love me, baby, I'm your man. All those highfalutin society people, I don't care if they don't understand. This, to me, was central to the entire Skinnerd ethos. And that is no matter how much money we might make, we are simple people. We are, we are, we're West Jacksonville good old boys, and we don't ever want the money to change us, and we don't want people to think that the money has changed us. My number four is from Street Survivors, and, and it's the instant Steve Gaines effect. I know a little. I know a little about love, and baby, you can guess the rest. I mean, I, I almost, I'm just, I'm kind of moved just thinking about it. I remember hearing it for the first time. I'm almost, I'm just about to hit my 20th birthday. It just seemed like a band having such an incredibly magnificent time. So I want to make sure people pay a visit to I Know A Little. And I managed to keep the secret until now. My fifth one, it is from One More From The Road. It's And, and it's the great Jimmy Rogers, 1936. It's about nine minutes. It's not 14, <laughs> like uh, like Freebird. The greatness of give me a T for Texas and a T for Tennessee, as Ronnie introduces it. The musicianship is incredible. The vibe is incredible. You can almost close your eyes and feel like you're at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Oh, how I wish I had been, because uh, I certainly saw him a couple of times before and after. But so there's one live four in the studio and the opportunity to visit these albums and the opportunity to pick these five uh, was a real honor because if this episode does anything, I hope it makes countless people listening going, wow, Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Pretty good country rock band, you know, really good, tight, memorable tunes. And for them to be remembered as really, really special and some of the best songwriting and some of the best musicianship that you're going to find anywhere. Uh, my two albums, I'm not overthinking this too much. It's the first two, uh, Pronounced and Second Helping. Those, I mean, if you're only going to have two, th th that is just the highest quality uh, songs that Leonard Skinner could produce are on those two albums. The songs, going back and forth, because I think you need one from the first album and one of those three 
been a big one. Simple Man, Tuesday's Gone, Freebird. And uh, um, Tuesday's Gone, I will put on my list. Go, Tuesday's Gone from the first album. Yes, a repeat with Mark working for MCA when all is said and done is probably my favorite Skinnerd riff ever on working for MCA. Also from Second Helping, uh, The Needle and the Spoon via my list. Uh, Am I Losing? Beautiful track from Nothing Fancy. And uh, I think there are so many ways with this fifth one. Uh, again, it's a band that, that's played all the time. There's, you know a lot of the big, big songs. So let me recommend that you at least go back and hear I Never Dreamed from Street Survivors, the very last Skinnerd album from that original run, uh, which really, really highlights Steve Gaines' songwriting and playing and maybe gives you a, a whisper of a hint of the way the band might have progressed on future albums I Never Dreamed from Street Survivors. Jeff? Well, if I were trying to be clever, I think the clever thing to do as my two albums would be to say, you, you know, you should get one more from the road and then you should get uh, Street Survivors. And that way you have like the, the greatest of everything <laughs> they did right up until that point and then the last album. All right. But that's a bit of a cheat. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go a second helping. And as for my second record, I'm actually going to pick Nothing Fancy because I think it's a really underappreciated album that I could have picked at least three songs, four songs even off of for my top five. I'm not going to. I'm going to try to spread it out a little bit more. So for my five songs, I'm going to start with Give Me Three Steps. It's probably the first Skinner song that I ever heard and, and the one that even when I was still like, oh, like, eh, I'm not really into this band. They're okay. But I love that song, and I still love that song. I think that song is just them at their their early greatness, and uh, you just showed that they're right out of the gate. They knew exactly who they were and what it is they wanted to do. Uh, the wit of, of, of Ronnie Van Zant's lyrics and the way he just delivers it with such charm. You have the great guitar approach. You have the, like the the effortless groove and, and just the sound of an ensemble that, that has been playing together non-stop endlessly for years and years and it's just been ready for so long to make it big second one is uh, the best song they ever did in my opinion and boy i'm glad i can agree with mark about this it's working for mca man that song is amazing and it's, it's funny i wasn't even on that that first best of they did that golden platinum didn't make it on that record for some reason who would have thought that how bizarre uh, but man you got to hear working for mca i don't even think that's on skinner's innards is it the other this is MCA's revenge. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Finally, finally, they got their. They got it's their like, revenge. you know, this, that, that's what they said. It's like, all right, we put it on the album. We're not going to put it on all those greatest hits albums because, you know, you, you guys are like, you know, insulting us. Uh, my third song is Saturday Night Special. Uh, there's the metallic clang of that song is something completely different from what you'd heard from Skinner up until this point. The lyric is. Again, really smart, really subversive. And uh, Ed King, again, such an underrated contributor to this band. It wasn't just, you know, Collins and Van Zant and Rossington. King was the guy who brought so many of their great songs to them musically. And, of course, another one that he brought to them is Railroad Song, also off of Nothing Fancy. I think that that is uh, maybe top three for me in their entire discography. Uh, I just love the fact that we're suddenly getting the big Jimmy Rogers train song tribute in the middle of a Leonard Skinner album it shows that they were more uh, more interested in, in like you know a lot of a lot of traditions a lot of American musical traditions than they're usually given credit for
And I guess the last one, boy, I could choose so many from Street Survivor. It, it's it's such a difficult choice to make, but maybe I'm going to go. I think if for anything, just because of symbolically what it what it represents, what it represents, you know, what could have been. I'll say you got that right, which is a fantastic song, and it's 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 a co-write between Steve Gaines and Ronnie Van Zant, and they sing it together, they duet together, and of course Van Zant, I think, once said, it's like, this guy's gonna overshadow us all at some point, you know, like, he's gonna become the leader of this band, he's that talented, he's that good, we'll never know what that could have been, we'll never know how things would have turned out, but we've got at least some of the evidence on that record, and it's a fantastic record, and this is a fantastic band who I really want to, I'm at pains to say, like, don't think, don't make the mistake that I did, don't think of Leonard Skinner as a southern rock band and then put them in that box and put them in that ghetto and that that little niche. This was a fantastic band, period. Be any kind of band you want. Don't have to be classified by southern rock or rock or soul or prog or any of those things. This was one of the great rock bands of the 70s. And the discography speaks for itself. throw in an adjective of influential because i think uh it, would there be not everything is linear always so, so if i were to phrase it uh, let me just blurt it out and then we can talk about it for, for a minute would there be a black crows would there be a kings of leon would there be a georgia satellites would there be a, a kentucky headhunters a government mule some of these somewhat more high-minded acts that probably view themselves as a, a somewhat um, uh, pricier vintage. I think they all owe something to Skinner. I mean, they may, they may think of themselves in, in uh, more refined or pricier vintage terms. I like that, that way of putting it. But, uh, you know, none of them can hold a candle to this band, in my opinion. They, they're all good. They all have their place. They're all you know, they're fine, fine groups. But, you know, in, in terms of, of what Skinner actually brought to the table, nah, they don't compare, in my opinion. There's the Political Beach look at Leonard Skinner. We thank our guest on the program, Mark Davis, talk show host, 660 AM, The Answer in Dallas-Fort Worth, Salem Media Group, Aaron Fillin for Dennis Prager and others on the network. Also, columnist at the Dallas Morning News and townhall.com. Find him online on Twitter, at Mark Davis. Mark, a great pleasure to have you back one more time here on Political Beats. It was an incredible honor, and as a closed circuit to people who might have found this because I'm talking about it on the radio or something like that, this Political Beats world is one of the most fascinating places anybody can go and i want to tell you that not just because of the the chemistry and the likability of you two guys but the people you welcome and what i have learned i mean i've got a stupid eclectic you know music brain i can't find my car keys and i can't find you know my shoes but i know all the members of bad company i'm that guy okay yet i've learned so much from you and i want to tell every listener right now 
to go search the Political Beats library, find a band you know nothing about or not much about, and listen to that one first. Because then not only will you have your own opinions reinforced, you will learn something in the way that I always enjoy watching documentaries about topics I don't really know about, but I see the passion that went into it. That's what you guys bring, and it's an honor, a real honor to be part of it. Hey, that's very kind of you, Mark, but I, I just want to confess to you right now, I've never listened to any of this music. I, I just basically go, <laughs> go off of Wikipedia, you know, and I just improvise, and hopefully it works out. It, well, it sure does. It sure does. You fake it till you make it. Mark, we, we double your payment for uh, guesting on today's show. At least I could do. At least yes. I could do. Uh, Jeff, at Esoteric CD on Twitter, we've got uh, a big summer bubbling up, putting pieces together, but looking forward to it. Yes, we have a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of things to work out scheduling-wise, but uh, we may be uh, getting even more ambitious than ever before. Or not. We'll see. And find Jeff at Esoteric City. My name is Scott Bertram, at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Remember, subscribe to our feed, get new episodes right to you, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Head to nationalreview.com, click on Podcast, you'll find us, listen, and leave reviews. Find us on Facebook, Political Beats, also at Political underscore Beats on Twitter. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.